This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com ebay motors is here for the ride remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease fresh installs and a whole lot of love you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own look to your left look to your right it's official no one's got a ride like this there's nothing else that sounds like feels like or looks like the set of wheels in your garage With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride-or-die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome to Composite Two Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast with a couple of one star hosts, Chris 10K Trevino and Gerard Hurricane Martinez. Part of the USCfootball.com podcast family. The Cilantro Boys talk about everything from commitment breakdowns, game analysis, old recruiting stories, and, of course, some unsubstantiated rumors. And now, here are your hosts, 18K and Gerald. Welcome back to Composite Two Star Recruits. I am your one-star host, 10K Trevino. And as always, I'm joined by my podcasting partner in crime, Gerard Martinez. Gerard, a little bit different today because this is a day earlier than we usually record. It is a Tuesday. We are throwing off your schedule a little bit. I am sorry. But Gerard, some big news happened last week that kind of somewhat forced us to maybe talk about it a little bit earlier than we usually do because it's a big deal. Yeah, I suggested maybe we needed an emergency podcast Mm. on a Monday. But Chris, he's a renaissance man. He's a dynamic guy. We know that from previous podcast episodes that he does all kinds of crazy things. He takes classes and uh, various different disciplines, uh, sketch writing and Hanging rocks and going on hikes and he I'm does just all kinds to, of crazy stuff. He's an eclectic guy with an I'm, eclectic personality. I'm just trying to I'm just trying to keep growing, you know. I'm just trying to improve myself. 
you know, expand my knowledge and my horizons and my skill base. So, you know, I'm just I'm just trying to, uh, you know, like like division, Gerard, I, it can't be one thing. You have to be multiple things. You have to upgrade different parts of your build. I'm just trying to upgrade my build. That's just all I'm trying to do. You know, your loadout. Crazy. OK, yeah. Yeah. I'm just you might to, have to explain division for people that probably no, that's, don't understand that's, that reference whatsoever. That's a, it's a it's a video game. And we're going to talk a little bit about a video game here in a little bit. But this is going to be an interesting show because I'm going to be straight up with you. This whole cold open, this whole first half of the show. I have no idea how long it's going to go, because when Gerard gets to talk at NIL, it goes a long time. So I think I'm just going to dedicate the first half of this entire show to NIL and the big NCAA death blow lawsuit, whatever you want to call it. We're going to dedicate all of that to the first half of this show, because as you know, Chrissy T fades in the back half of the of the of episodes. So I thought put it up front. Let's attack it head on and then we'll handle some of the lighter talking points visitor updates, the classes, the class is, no, the classes, I'm, how do you say the, I, I'm totally losing it right now, the 2025 classes. classes' biggest needs, which we bumped from last week's episode, but we're going to talk about it today to kick off the second half. So it's going to be heavy up front and then some lighter, quicker stuff in the back half. Don't actually have a lot of questions. We actually got one question and it pertains to the NCAA, so I kind of threw it in up there at the front. So, Gerard, before I sign us off, are you ready? Are you ready? That's all I have to say. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. I don't know if the listeners are ready. Sure. I don't know if college football is sure. ready, Chris. I, I, I think we're all hesitant. There's some trepidation in terms of what is coming with college football. What is college football becoming in the next 10 years. So we're going to get into it. We're not probably going to answer a lot of questions. We may raise more questions than we answer, but as we've said in previous podcast episodes, we are sort of at the infancy still of this thing, this evolution of amateur sports, which has become pro-am over the last few years. So we're going to get into that. And, um, you know, hopefully be able to explain some things and then just like I said, raise questions, have some dialogue about possibilities and kind of go from there. So we'll we'll see uh, how the discussion goes. Neither Chris nor myself are lawyers. So I'm not taking a law class. I'm not taking a law class. So yeah, one of those classes he's taking is not a law class, which, you know, he may need to expand and continue to grow. And take the bar and become a lawyer so we can come back and talk about this stuff. Uh, but you know what? I've talked to lawyers and they don't always agree on what's going on right now with college football, NIL, and the legalities of this and sort of what the end game is going to look like. Uh, but nevertheless, Chris, take us away with our sponsor and we'll roll into this episode of the Composite Two Star Podcast. Hell yeah, baby. And yeah, just a quick shout out to the official sponsor of the Composite Two Star Recruits, Meredith Schlosser. You know her, you love her. The top real estate agent in Los Angeles with over $600 million in sales. If you want to learn more about Meredith and her team, go to www.meredith.com. 
Schlosser.com. That is S-C-H-L-O-S-S-E-R for her last name. And you can check out her business Instagram at Meredith Real Estate. Check out all the postings and listings that she has going on in the SoCal real estate space. And again, if you're looking to buy or sell a home, you got to go with Meredith. She is the best. Gerard, cold open time. It's a very hefty, weighty, lawyer-filled lawsuit, antitrust, the end of college football. It's a lot of things wrapped into one. Now, I'm going to try to summarize everything succinctly, but as Gerard said moments ago, we are not lawyers. I am definitely not a lawyer. So we may say things incorrectly, especially like law jargon or anything like that. So work with us here. We're just two guys having a conversation or in this case, one guy listening to another guy talk for a really long time about NIL and college football. So we had mentioned earlier in an earlier episode, maybe it was in January, maybe early February. I can't. Uh, recall, but general attorney, attorney generals, excuse me, brought antitrust lawsuits against the NCAA from Tennessee and Virginia. We had talked about how Tennessee had been caught up with potential NCAA sanctions coming down hard on the volunteers for NIL violations. So Tennessee And the attorney generals of the state, they clapped back with their own little lawsuits. Virginia jumped in as well. And we got a ruling earlier this week, several days ago, that, Gerard, maybe I'm out of turn here, but might be the most significant inflection point of NIL since NIL started. I don't know if I'm out of turn in saying that this is the most important data point of NIL that's happened since it started. Maybe you can comment on that once I give the mic to you. But basically, uh, Eastern District of Tennessee, U.S. District Judge made a ruling, and it basically said that the NCAA's, you know, stance on amateurism and, you know, these limitations they have on NIL likely violates antitrust. So that essentially means the NCAA is barred from enforcing rules prohibiting to name, image, and likeness. Specifically, as it's being tied to recruit athletes. So high schoolers, you know, that's the, that's the big thing. I'm going to read a quote here. While the NCAA permits student athletes to profit from their NIL, it fails to show how the timing of when a student athlete enters such an agreement would destroy the goal of preserving preserving amateurism. That was in the, uh, what is it called? The, the ruling that the judge issued out on, uh, I believe it was last Friday. And this is a quote from a ten- the Tennessee uh, Attorney General. This is the beginning of whatever the new order of college sports is, but there had to be a fresh start. What we had wasn't working, and this is what it and this is what it took to get 
to start the ball rolling in the next direction. Whatever happens, we are going to continue fighting to make sure that student athletes have fair and clear rules that are going to let them enjoy the benefits of the sports that bring so much joy to everyone. Obviously, the NCAA did not like this decision, did not like this ruling, and they stated that this ruling will, quote, aggravate an already chaotic collegiate environment, further diminishing protections for student athletes from exploitation. The NCAA fully supports student athletes making money from their name, image, and likeness and is making changes to deliver more benefits to student athletes. But an endless patchwork of state laws and court opinions make clear partnering with Congress is necessary to provide stability for the future of all college athletes. Basically, the NCAA is like, Congress, we need your help. You need to step in. And most of the stories I've read say Congress is the one that would have to step in to give the NCAA an exemption when it comes to the antitrust that they are, the antitrust laws that they are violating, which is what this whole lawsuit and ruling is about. So it feels like the co- Congress and the government is the only hope for the NCAA in terms of survivability in the future. But again, the big question is, what does this mean? Well, it basically means the wild, wild west just got a lot more wilder. Because as I mentioned, the NCAA is barred from enforcing their name, image, and likeness prohibitions, restrictions for recruiting athletes. Now, we know schools, there, there's been schools that have been just gung-ho about this, just jumping into the deep end. There's been other schools who have not been diving headfirst into this, a.k.a. USC. So now that it's out there and it's in the open and there's this official ruling that basically says, do whatever you want, what the hell is going to happen with the rest of the schools, with USC, Will NCAA ever get its power back? Will Congress step in? There are so many questions that this has created. But in the midst of all this, what is the first thing that you think about, Gerard? Well, the first thing I think about is the truth of the matter. This lawsuit was brought forth because Tennessee wanted to cover their ass for cheating. And they knew that they got ahead of the game with NIL. But they also understood that at the end of the day, if the NCA ever came after them again for NIL, and it goes beyond just this lawsuit, but this is clearly a case that was uh, overseen in Tennessee, uh, district courts in Tennessee, and certainly was played at the home court of Tennessee. So this came originally from Tennessee being one of those schools, as you said, being very gung-ho and very aggressive and probably pushing the boundaries of NIL, only looking ahead knowing that the NCAA would have a hard time pushing and really being able to underline uh, what the rules are when they themselves have not established much clarity with those bylaws. 
And that's what Tennessee is taking advantage of. And that's what a lot of schools have taken advantage of. We go back to Jimbo Fisher when he decided to have a press conference just to clap back at Nick Saban making a mention of Texas A&M paying $30 million for the recruiting class. Jimbo Fisher decides he's got to have a press conference just to have a retort about this, which we all kind of thought was funny. But then listening to him speak during that press conference, he didn't mention the NCAA once when it came to rules, bylaws, regulations. He kept going back to talking about we haven't broken any state laws. That was the indication that clearly these schools that are pushing aggressively into the area of inducement, which is when it all comes down to what the NCAA is saying is illegal. You cannot try to lure a recruit to a school by saying, we will pay you this much money. That is inducing that player to commit to your school. And again, with Jimbo Fisher, it came back to state laws. What are you going to be able to do when you have actual state representation going after you? And that's the one thing with USC going back to the Reggie Bush investigation and then subsequent penalties levied by the NCAA is that USC is a private school. So they were using their own counsel, but they didn't have state resources to go after the NCAA. And we've seen many of these schools that have fought back against the NCAA lean against their state legislatures to be able to get things done. Penn State was a great example with the way the Pennsylvania uh, politicians and legislature jumped in to basically threaten the NCAA uh, over the NCAA's initial approach to leveling penalties and sanctions against Penn State for the Jerry Sandusky issues that they have. So the first thing is, okay, this is Tennessee trying to dodge a bullet here, uh, knowingly maybe have done some things that were not in the spirit, certainly, of NIL. Uh, but then also the end game in terms of the, it's kind of the beginning of the end, knowing that it was going to go up to the states, the states, whichever state it was going to be, whether it was going to be Florida, uh, whether it was going to be Alabama, Ohio, one of these states, you know, even with Texas because of Texas A&M and even to some extent Texas, whoever was going to get pinched, there was going to be, uh, you know, that initial blowback. and They would know that they could lean against state legislatures to try to fire back at the NCAA. So that's the first thing within context of knowing how this got started. The state of Tennessee is not doing this for college football. They're not doing it for college football players. Let's not be naive. There, you know, no virtual signaling here. This is nonsense. It's more about them covering their own asses, but mm -hmm. it does have wider, greater impact over college football and the nation as a whole. And we're still at that point where different states have different laws. They're written differently. And of course, different schools have different interpretations of not only those laws, but also the schools that are actually uh, adhering and um, taking into account what the NCAA has written down when it comes to NIL. 
Certainly USC is the latter in terms of abiding by what the NCAA has written and going more along with what the NCAA wants in terms of NIL and NIL regulation as opposed to uh, leaning on the state and then maybe even federally because eventually there's going to have to be some consensus here as to you know what can be done when it comes to NIL and what is going to be prohibited. And so, yeah, we are at that fork of the road in terms of the NCAA is now calling for Congress to step in and the state legislatures will now get in line and they're going to try to figure out, okay, what is the best way to be able to regulate this? And of course, when you're talking about government, there's going to be the conversation that will come up with uh, employees and whether these players are actually employees, because that is the path to taxation, which of course the government wants to do. They want their piece of the cake. They want to wet their beak. And so there's going to be that push also while this goes on. And that's already actually going on. There's a case closer to home that we can get into and talk about where USC is involved. They're being sued actually. Uh, And they are being sued for the misrepresentation of student athletes that should be categorized as employees. So this is a very interesting, um, really tip of the iceberg. Maybe we're down a little bit on the iceberg and not actually at the tip of the tip here, but it's still, you know, we're, we're figuring out what's going on and, and how everybody is going to um, approach and argue for the rules. I mean, eventually this is going to end up in the Supreme Courts, I would yeah. think. And so we do have a long Letitious process that will come forth and there'll be various parties that want to bring lawsuits for whatever, maybe individual cases that push it forward, or there will be more of these state cases and maybe even perhaps the NCA uh, pushing back itself. Although I think what a lot of the opinions coming away from this particular case and really opinions that were probably already in the making because you kind of saw the writing on the wall with this is this the end of the NCA? Is the NCA really going to fight back in its current stage, in its current uh, construction? You know, the way it's built, the, the 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 entity that it is, or is it going to manifest itself? It's going to evolve into some different kind of governing um, middleman that can be represent representation of the individual schools itself. Uh, that is not necessarily going to be at the forefront of, um, you know, college athletics as a whole, it might be more of the union side of things or player representation side of things, or perhaps just more representation on the university side of things, but probably more narrow in in its scope. I just want to say, did you have another, maybe it was you that had the idea that maybe the NCAA would just take, the schools that don't want to deal with that field of NIL and while the Super League is created, like it splits off into this different body. Where amateurism still is the uh, construct of the game. Uh, and yeah. I, I No, and I don't really know – I've thought about that, but I don't know how that even exists um, in the current state of things because players can always get paid. 
and it doesn't matter. I, I don't know what rules you can put forth on a player to say you can't get paid. Like that is illegal to play in this conference, this league or what have you it is illegal unless it's the schools themselves, which all agree, but not as a body, but as the schools individually, that when you sign a letter of intent to go to that school to play a sport, you sign away your rights to be able to be monetized in any way, you know? And, and so that might be something that can happen. Again, we use the example of the Ivy League schools and the Ivy mm -hmm. League conference where they don't give scholarships. Now that's a gentleman's agreement among those schools. They play in a division, a uh, championship division in college football where there are a lot of schools they play against. They have 63 scholarships on the roster. So they're playing at a disadvantage, but they have decided amongst themselves, we are going to put academics and education first, and we are not going to put resources of scholarships towards this. And so it's, again, something that the schools individually do, and it's not like, you know, it's the Ivy League that does it. I don't think the conference has uh, this kind of bolder regulation. It's just the individual schools have decided this is going to be our approach. And it would have to be something like that um, where, you know, the players going in would have to sign those rights away and agree that, yes, I am not going to take any monetization. Now, granted, you know, there's, you can sign your rights away and still do it. And it, it would be at least illegal at that point. And then the player himself takes on that responsibility of the legalities for whatever suspension, because you signed up originally to go to that school. And that school is a part of a conference or a league in which uh, being monetized, uh, being given endorsements, uh, any type of, uh, you know, perk that you would get, uh, for being an athlete or otherwise, you know, would would be uh, the school could basically say, and it would have to be the school that would penalize it. It, it, it's, it is a little bit complicated because you're at, you know, it's a good player and all of a sudden he got some money under the table for doing something. And it's like, you know, you're putting, you're, you're putting the schools now being the ones having to police themselves as opposed to this bigger governing body that's supposed to be, non-bias, right? They're supposed to be objective. And we've seen, and certainly we've experienced through the NCAA dealing with USC, we know that is not the case, that the NCAA does have bias. And you can read rulings, you can read opinions that come from them, and even came from them out of the result of the Reggie Bush investigation, when you had people like Missy Conboy, who has been in the Notre Dame athletic department for decades, and saying silly things like USC should get the death penalty. And it's just completely out of pocket, looking at the penalties and looking even at the allegations compared to what other schools did. Well, that's clearly a conflict of interest. Didn't matter. She was still on the committee of infractions that levied the sanctions against USC. So we know the NCAA is not really truly unbiased, but that was the way it was originally constructed. That's what that entity was supposed to do. It was supposed to be representation of all these different schools from all these different regions in the United States. And there was supposed to be some balanced oversight over all the athletics and the rules of the athletics. 
And now you, again, have this split into the schools themselves saying, yeah, that's cool. The NCAA, we're not really adhering to those rules anymore that you guys created, even though it's really us that kind of indirectly created those rules because we created you and are a part of you. I mean, the NCAA and the school presidents are kind of one in the same to some extent. Now, not all the school presidents are part of the NCAA, but all these people together, they're the ones who, you know, are the ones who vote to promote people and have people represent um, the school's interests in the committee of infractions, uh, college football playoff, uh, all these different various things that the NCAA are a part of. I mean, they're just university representatives throughout the nation. So it's a kind of weird thing to talk about, well, the schools are turning their backs on the NCAA because they kind of, in a way, are the NCAA. But nevertheless, that's sort of what's happening. It's basically, we're just going to adhere to state laws now. And because this involves private sector money, which is AKA the donors, the boosters, um, they can, because the one thing that limits the NCAA is that they don't have subpoena power. So there's a lot of these cases that they just really cannot go forth unless they've got a whistleblower who's actually able to give you bank statements and receipts and things of that nature. And then the NCAA tries to compile some investigation from that. So many of the bigger cases that we've seen over the years, I mean, just look at the Arizona state case, the NCAA doesn't get involved there at all unless there's whistleblowers within the football program that actually provide them information of what's going on. If that doesn't happen, Arizona State's in the clear. And Arizona State was one school of many schools that were breaking rules during the COVID shutdown. So it was only ASU that ended up on the pike because someone within the football department decided to blow the whistle to the NCAA. And that was similar with the Reggie Bush case with Lloyd Lake, who had come forth and he was the one that was involved with Reggie Bush and his parents. And so he had some financial data and there was a lot of blank spots and a lot of blind spots in that investigation. And the NCA sort of filled in the holes with their own opinions. And I think that's what eventually caused this real rift between Mike Garrett, the athletic department and the committee of infractions, really the enforcement officers that are on campus, they're investigating, they're asking people questions, and you could see through the case file where they start to make opinions that seem to have been cemented before they're actually doing the investigation. And I think, from my own opinion, that's where at some point USC felt like you guys are just trying to build this case and then fill in the evidence afterwards, and we're not going to be a part of that. So go kick rocks. And then, you know, obviously the NCA wasn't very happy about uh, that type of compliance. And so they, you know, eventually uh, levied some pretty hard sanctions that uh, were unjust. And I think most people who know anything about the investigation know that that was a overstep by the NCAA in terms of what they did. And again, some of the people that were part of the Committee of Infractions that actually handed down the ruling, uh, they, they had a conflict of interest. They had uh, an interest in seeing USC taking down a few notches. And subsequently, that's what happened. But nevertheless, with this particular case, 
there's still a lot that has to be revealed. Um, I think the first talking point in terms of what does this mean, it means, and particularly for USC, it brings donors into the fold more directly. What USC Mm -hmm. did on the outset with creating Boulevard was try to create a buffer of individuals who were former USC employees, but they were not boosters. They were not businessmen. They were not from the private sector. They were former administrators, if you will, and individuals who could be somewhat objective in terms of handling NIL and Again, being a buffer between the university and the boosters with the idea that, okay, the NCAA is really, as a governing body, uneasy about booster money and donations going directly to students. There's tons of bylaws and regulations that keep boosters away from even current players. Right. You, you know, there's there's just certain things that they don't want people getting white envelopes. And so, you know, USC and I understand the logic behind it, wanted to create Boulevard as this way that you could have your current players get a branding. And then this group would help reach out to various different brands, various different companies and get endorsements for these players. So it wasn't a, we need to raise money from the boosters just to get a war chest so we can pay these players. And then maybe somewhere down the line, we can start paying recruits. It was, let's try to get the attention of actual big time corporations and brands to be able to pay these players, which was the spirit of NIL to begin with. It was about endorsement. It was about corporate sponsorship. It was about these big time players that were missing out on millions of dollars from, let's say, Nike, let's say, uh, Beats, let's say, Gatorade, etc., because they could not utilize, they did not own their name, image, and likeness. So when that became something that they took ownership of, it's, in the spirit of it, a chance for them to, in those kind of rare cases, talk to these companies, negotiate with these companies and be able to make money um, putting their face on a Wheaties box. But it quickly became, you know, Joe football fan that's, you know, a a millionaire, his ability to say, well, you know, I'm going to go pay for these players to make my team better. And certainly in terms of the recruiting process, so going beyond just the current team, But going into the recruiting process, it is much more efficient and direct when you have the people writing the paychecks also negotiating the deals and getting the money directly to the players, as opposed to having this middleman of Boulevard or whatever collective that is really kind of quasi run by the school. And then they're the ones trying to bring the boosters in. A lot of these schools like Texas A&M and Miami, et cetera. They had collectives that were uh, being represented and run by the boosters themselves. So the money men were running the show. And what this does is it really rewards and it brings us more towards, in my opinion, 
those schools and what they've been doing and their approach the past two years. So it really is USC, they went down a path which I understand. I mean, I think it's reasonable to conclude why you would take that approach and have that philosophy of, hey, let's do things to where we don't have boosters just giving guys money directly. That's certainly going to lead to potential inducement. There's a lot of motive there to ignore compliance. Let's let's try to have some people involved that can kind of be a buffer between those two entities, university, players, and the money that's coming from donations. But this is basically saying, why would you do that? Why, why would you? You're creating an entity that doesn't need to exist. The players uh, and recruits specifically, because that is, you know, really where this this brings in the recruiting process more than just the college football players and enrollment. Because, you know, college football players that were already enrolled, that wasn't the issue at hand here. It's pre-enrollment that this lawsuit is really attacking. And it's saying that negotiating deals before enrollment that is part of the right of the recruit to gain as much out of NIL as possible. Mm -hmm. And it's hurting their ability to be able to get as much as they can financially, not being able to negotiate with the schools. So it's kind of racing the line between the schools, the boosters and the recruits themselves. But the problem is it also races the rule of inducement and not being able to induce a recruit to go to a school because how do you have a, a negotiations without inducement? It's you can't. kind of, yeah, they're Does kind of sense. tied at the hip there. And so if you're going to negotiate a deal as a university, so now you are directly, you know, the schools are there, the people that are writing the paychecks are there. Everybody's in one room saying, okay, how much, can we give you how this is how much we think you're worth? Well, that's inducement. That's saying, Hey, we're going to give you this much money to come play football here. Now you can potentially uh, doctor it up in writing and say, well, no, it's for charity work. And it's for this. He's going to have to work to do this, that, and the other. And within a contract, there are no performance incentives, which is also illegal and there was nothing specific brought up in this case about that but nevertheless there are contracts that are being written up and all these different schools have different length contracts which is something that's interesting and something that's hurting some schools and helping some other schools um and we talked about ohio state a few weeks ago and their big move with nil and a lot of it having to do with bringing in professionals that have dealt with uh high-end celebrities and athletes and understanding how to construct contracts and and that being something that you know is very high level and the representation of the players um you know that we've talked to here and there different entities that help the kids that are recruits navigate nil uh, being very favorable of the way ohio state does things, being very favorable of the way Oregon does things. Oregon's very helpful and they're willing to go out and they're willing to perhaps overspend in some respects. And 
you know, because Division Street is really kind of run by shadow Nike employees, you're getting a high level of, of professional that's that's involved here, that's uh, handling these things. Um, these are not uh, university employees. Uh, these are people at Nike who have dealt with Michael Jordan, who have dealt with LeBron James and Kobe Bryant. I mean, the highest level of athletes. So you know they've seen it all, right? They they know how to get creative with contracts, how to give incentives that really work, et cetera. So, you know, Ohio State made that move, but you're obviously trying to make these contracts as lucrative as possible, but also um, trying to find creative ways to be able to recruit with such country. This is all negotiations, but this is all inducement as well. So that line has now been at the very least blurred in my view, it's been completely erased. So, you know, you can't really separate those two. And I think that is where, you know, people calling it the wild, wild west. We, we knew it was the wild, wild west two years ago. You know, it's been the wild, wild west. I mean, I've talked to enough players and, and lawyers and reps and quasi-agents and real agents and university administrators to know that things had already been crazy. Um, but what this does, it really, for USC's purposes, it really pushes them in the opposite direction that they initially wanted to go into. So this was another situation. And we kind of held our tongue about this because you kind of want things to play out and uh, you don't want to jump the shark and say, oh, USC's making the wrong move here. They're, they're, they're totally wrong. This is just like the Reggie Bush case. They went completely in the wrong direction in terms of their legal counsel and their, their moves and how they handle things. But yes, USC at this point in time is showing to have taken the wrong approach to NIL. This is rewarding the schools that all along felt like the NCAA doesn't have any teeth. They really don't have jurisdiction over this anymore because it is private sector money coming from boosters and donations. And ultimately, it's going to be state laws and then maybe potentially down the road, federal law that is going to regulate NIL and what you can do and what you can't do. Um, and, and of course, the expense of all of that. And then we start to get into the question of player unions. And what is the collective bargaining that is going to result uh, potentially from this? Because that's the other thing that we've talked about a lot. And I talked about initially in the first write-up that I did when California passed the first law when it came to NIL and uh, high school players and college players being able to profit from name, image, and likeness. One of the first things I said, okay, so who's going to negotiate on the bigger scale, right? Who's going to negotiate potential merchandising deals? Who's going to negotiate electronic sports college football game? Uh, because you can't go throughout the nation and talk to every individual college football player. This is not going to happen. And the NFL has a much smaller roster of players as a league. They have Players, Inc., and they have – a union. So all of that gets done with union representation and people that are representing the whole entirety of the players in the league. The NCAA doesn't have that. College football doesn't have that yet. And so, again, you have this scattered everybody in every which direction and some people thinking this way and no things should be done this way. And, of course, it does 
again, bring up the point of, is there more transparency? Is it more straightforward to make these players employees? You mentioned the game because the game is an interesting kind of secondary point off of everything that's going on right now with the NCAA. NCAA, And it was obviously one of the reasons why the NCAA game stopped being produced over a decade ago is because of this whole idea of name, image, and likeness. And now here we are, fast forward 11 years, we're about to get another video game. And you've probably seen the campaign where players, college football players, have been tweeting out that they have opted into the game. Now, all players have the ability to opt out of the game. I believe all schools are opting in. Every school will be available in the game, but players individually will be allowed to opt out. And we're seeing cultural players tweet out this graphic. I guess you get this little graphic if you officially opt in and you can post on your social media. We've only seen two USC players officially opt in or posted publicly that they have opted in. And that's Zachariah Branch, USC's dynamic freshman receiver, and then Bear Alexander. Those are the two players and the only players that I've seen from the Trojans that have officially opted in. Now, you're asking, Chris, what do you get if you opt in? Well, per all the releases, if you opt in, you get $600 to be in the game. You get compensated $600 for them to use your name, image, and likeness in this game, and you get a copy of the game, which is valued at $70. So you're getting $670. So Gerard, my question is to you, you're a college football player, Hurricane Martinez. Are you opting in for $600? $600 does not seem a lot for mm-hmm. a franchise, which is, you know, a multi-million, maybe at its peak, if it would have kept going a billion dollar franchise. Yeah. At the same time, it's hard to compare this with, let's say, Madden, because as I just talked about comparing the NFL with college football, you have so many more college football players and so many more college football teams than you have NFL teams. You're also dealing with individual universities that all have their own agendas. It's not like it's a group of owners who are under the same regulations, dealing with the same rules. There's a commissioner. College football has none of that right now. And so it doesn't seem like a lot. And the interesting thing, this game was shut down because of the Ed O'Bannon lawsuit. And Mm -hmm. at that point, Ed O'Bannon was basically just arguing, listen, there's a – Black guy in a game who's bald, who's around my height, <laughs> who wears my number, who plays for UCLA. That's me. It didn't really look like him because certainly those last-gen graphics didn't didn't give you this great detail of what somebody would look like. But it was enough of a representation of Ed O'Bannon that he was able to win that lawsuit. What I find striking is that if – Electronic Arts is not able to sign all of these players. Now, you say 
that it's been reported that every team has opted in to be a part of the game? You've read yes. that? Yes. Okay, I'm because gonna I know... Up, I'm going to pull it up just to double check my... Certain setup. schools like Notre Dame, USC, they are not a part of these bigger licensing entities. Uh, there are quite a few schools that are a part of bigger licensing entities, which you know represent like 200 different schools. And so USC is the, always... Could I read the part real quick? Yeah. EA Sports announced on Thursday that all 134 FBS teams will be included in the game. And USC football's main account tweeted out their own graphic that they were in the game as well. Okay. So Interesting. Double, Interesting. Double, double confirmation, I guess. I don't know what the, I don't know how USC is going to spend their $600 check. <laughs> yeah. They're getting more than $600 for the logos and for the, the colors and for everything that goes along with it. Uh, there will be individual rights probably for the Coliseum to have the Coliseum in the game. It's um, owned by USC. It's more than $600. Which is yeah. Yeah. There, there's a lot of licensing that has to go into a game like this. And it's not being called NCAA football anymore. And that in itself is was a little bit of a – hint that there's not a lot of confidence in the NCAA long-term maintaining its ability to keep everybody in line. You know, in the past, you could have a licensing agreement with the NCAA and it was all encompassing and that's no longer the case. So just with the individual players, though, I wonder if, let's say, Miller Moss decides, you know, I don't need $600 I feel like I'm worth more than that. Hmm. I am not going to opt into the game. Can they just put a white quarterback number seven in the game and not get sued? Because again, it wasn't like Ed O'Bannon was in the game by name. It wasn't like his photo real face was in the game. It was just kind of a vague sort of, okay, it's like his height and it's his number and he's a bald guy and he was able to win the lawsuit with this. So I, I still do wonder you know, they shut the game down, and I thought to myself, why don't you just create rosters with just ge- generic players across the board with all zero zero, and then you could just go and edit those rosters yourself and do that if you want to, and have full control over roster editing. I think one of the issues cynically for me was probably that a lot of these games, particularly a, a EA Sports, has been notorious for charging $70 for a roster update. So they don't do a lot from year to year upgrading their game, but they're still charging you $70. And why $70 is going into an updated roster. And so they don't want you to have complete control over editing a roster because you just update it yourself. So there's a lot of interesting uh, details about this, and I'm still a bit skeptical on how it's all going to play out. But if you shut down your game because you couldn't have individual-looking players represented by team i don't know how that's going to change going forward unless you actually go out of your way to just make the usc quarterback look completely different than the usc quarterback does and you go ahead and you put uh, a real likeness to the players that opt in and you know they are sort of showcased from that standpoint which maybe that is something just from a branding standpoint is a lure for college football players to want to be in the game like i want my face to actually be in the game and i'm going to get six hundred dollars for it maybe it's something that helps 
get your name into the household of people, which we know, you know, from an NIL standpoint, a lot of this is brand building. Like you're not in the yep. NFL yet. You know, Chris and I were actually talking about who would be on the cover of the game if they change protocol and have someone that is a current college football player on the cover of the game. Because in the past, they had to retroactively put a player on the game who was already graduating or already leaving that school. So they didn't fall under the NCAA's amateurism. So in the case of this year, it would be Caleb Williams, without a doubt. Caleb Williams would be on the cover because he's already leaving USC. They can negotiate a deal with him, so on and so forth. But now that you have name, image, and likeness and you have these players opting in, might they go down the road of having someone who is technically the best college football player coming back to college football it's not a on great the cover. list so chris and i are talking about who do you put on the cover and i don't know just just thinking of it off the top of our heads no, we didn't really come to some consensus of players that we felt like oh well that would be the guy without a doubt that you put on the cover of ncaa football and so it reiterates that point of there's still a lot of brand building that has to go on so these are opportunities for these players in a lot of way the problem is you get a lot of people in the ears of these players. And this happens a lot with recruiting. And it's trainers and people that have been through the process. And I have been told a couple times by individuals that are actually representing players with NIL. And they're not former players. They're not trainers. They're they're not coming from that perspective. And they deal sometimes with these individuals. And it's sort of like a lot of the ex-players that are still around the game and they're working with players and they're coaching players and they're training players. They want their pound of flesh. They didn't get an IL. And so when it comes to wanting more, it's like they're out for themselves as much as they're out for the kids as well. And some of that is going on. And so you have a lot of bad advice with recruits and players just wanting way more than market value six hundred dollars in a free game is just not a lot i mean when you hear about all these supposed multi-million dollar deals for high school quarterbacks you're getting six hundred dollars to be in a game that's you know going to send sell hundreds of thousands of copies but the truth of the matter is you're probably not really worth that much from a value standpoint ea is trying to get as many players in the game and still make a profit. And knowing yeah. EA, they want to make a big profit. And they'll probably have microtransactions that you can, you know, have uh, the, the new uh, Zachariah Branch braids or some weird thing they're going to try to sell you after the after the after the fact that the game has already been. I'm so ready for it. I'm so for ready. For seventy dollars. Well, you're ready for it until you realize that it's fifteen bucks just for a, a a different set of braids. You know, like that's not that's not really. it's not really (laughs) worth it but nevertheless i mean this is you know trying to monetize it as much as possible like what is it worth to ea how much money do they actually make out of the game um if they have to pay all these players and again there's a lot of players there's a lot more players to have to pay and then you talk about maybe putting coaches into the game etc and it eats in to that profit margin so it's going to be interesting to see this evolution of, of the game. But in this weird way, it's a representation of also 
the success of NIL and what everybody can get from it, how much of the pie is still left to go around. Because ultimately, if we come to this point where there's just not enough profit margin and you're dealing with people that are used to you making a lot of money off of college football, do they shut down shop? And do you get to that point where there's a fork of the road where there are schools that say, all right, we're going to play college football, but it might be intramural college football. <laughs> and you're going to have to opt out of NIL in order to be here on the scholarship. And, you know, the legalities of that can be argued by the lawyers. I don't know. It's that or the people that want to pay these kids so bad and want to be these, you know, Jerry Jones type boosters for college football. They just go make their own farm teams and try to get some type of association with the NFL and go that route and just make it full on. We're going to pay these players salary and, and everything we make from a profit standpoint is going back into these franchises as opposed to the schools. And that's where you get into the whole argument of players as employees. And there's another lawsuit going on closer to home where you have the National Labor Relations Board lawsuit is filed by the College Athletic Players Association, which is kind of this entity which is trying to uh, build itself sort of as, as player union representation. And they've had some lawsuits in the past that haven't really gone anywhere. Uh, I think they had to, I think they tried to unionize Northwestern football players and went to court for it and it failed. But now they are suing USC specifically, the NCAA and the Pac-12, but USC, because they are a private school, going after USC and saying that they misclassified their players as student athletes when in reality, they are employees. Now, this is an interesting lawsuit to watch because we've heard time and time again from athletic directors and university presidents that if schools have to pay players as employees, the school's athletic funds will diminish to an extent that it will kill off other, you know, Title IX, uh, other, you know, non-revenue generating sports. And so this has been the battle cry for a long time. And it's not because they're going to have to pay the players a bunch of money. That's not it. In fact, we've heard behind the scenes recruits talk about how certain schools pay almost like a base salary for every one of the players on the team, $60,000 a year, $70,000 a year, $80,000 a year. What this is, is taxation. That's the big issue that the universities have, because if these players are all employed, then they've got to get benefits. Then it becomes about a business that you have. And with that business, you're obviously paying business taxes. And at this point in time, these colleges are tax exempt and they want to keep that tax exempt status. They don't want um, you know, the government sniffing around their books and how much money are you making and how much money are you spending on what? And so, you know, on one hand, the government is very motivated to see these college football players as employees because then they can tax the universities. At the same time, the universities are saying, listen, we are not built to be businesses. We are institutions of higher learning. And the money that we make goes directly back into building facilities, buying books, uh, even though you got to buy your own book as a student, trust me, I know how much freaking money that costs. 
Um, but it's it's not a, a profit generating business in the sense of a, a capitalistic view. Um, there have been, however, and this has come up specifically with this lawsuit that is against USC by the College Athletic Players Association, that perhaps these universities now, specifically when you're talking about Power 5 universities, are falling under the UBI, the Unrelated Business Income Tax. This is something that I've heard come up a few times where with college football, obviously the universities themselves are not built out to make a bunch of money from college football. That's not why they were created in the first place. That is not um, what they are made out to do, but they do have an income and they are making more money and they do have margins of profit that are coming from college football, which is unrelated to the initial uh, foundation of why they exist. And more importantly, it's unrelated income to the original um, existence of the institution that is carried over from year to year. And so there's a lot of people that legally say these universities absolutely fall underneath this unrelated business income tax. And so they should be taxed just under that alone. So there is, again, more pressure and more people that are leaning towards, you know, let's make the players employees. And of course, from a positive side, there would be much more transparency if players made an actual salary, because we know there's a lot that's reported in terms of money and who's being paid what when it comes to salaries in the NFL. We get so many questions about well, why, what, you know, how much did this guy get paid and how much should he get paid and, and what is this worth and how much is this collective raising and this, that, and the other. And it's like, listen, this is private sector money. We don't know. You're not going to get that information from people. It doesn't, it's not to their advantage, even when they're negotiating contracts um, to say, yeah, this is how much I got. That's why the numbers you often see publicly reported about this player or that player, this recruit signed for this much money is bogus. It's coming from people that want to try to up the amount of money that the players are getting. So they throw extravagant numbers out there, hoping that Oregon and Phil Knight say, oh, we can pay that. It's not worth to pay that. That player is not worth that value to the university. Oregon Stadium's got 53,000 seats. They don't throw, they, it's a regional school. It's not like they're national and they have this really huge reach like Notre Dame uh, where they're selling all kinds of merchandise. Uh, it, you know, the, the, the TV money, like Oregon's just not, as a university, this big deal uh, from a standpoint of we get these top players and it's going to make us money in the back end. What it makes potentially is Nike money in the back end because then those players will leave Oregon and potentially they go to the NFL, they become pro bowlers, and then you can throw some Nikes on them and you can make some money. So for Phil Knight and Division Street and Nike and Oregon all being in cahoots together, there's some reason and then you know to, to overpay and do things of that nature. But you know, in terms of value, um, that's still a bit of a question mark as to how many millions of dollars a, a specific player is worth. Um, you know, how much is really the Heisman Trophy worth to a school in terms of exposure? I've heard some of those 
numbers thrown around, which are pretty big numbers. And I think it changes from school to school. You know, USC has a Heisman Trophy winner. How much is it worth to that university as opposed to how much it might be to UCLA for having a Heisman Trophy winner? You know, how many donations do you get? How many people do you get looking at your school? One of the arguments that was made um, when it came to uh, how big athletics is and how much you put into it with having uh, big time coaches. And it was really the question of coaching salaries because they've gotten ex- so exorbitant. And I think it was LSU's AD who had the opinion of, listen, there's a lot of people that go to this university from outside the region. And we have this many uh, students that are actually coming from the East Coast. And we don't think those individuals would really know much about LSU if we didn't have a great football team. Like the football team does help with how many people, kids, uh, enrollees you get from year to year because they want to have that college experience. And part of a college experience is going and checking out the sports teams. And everybody wants to go to school where the sports teams are successful. So that in turn, it does help us with our enrollment and how many people we want going to school. And that obviously feeds the beast with how much money other either sports programs get or even how it goes to maybe some of the facilities that are made and how it helps um, the educational programs at those schools. So, I mean, there's such a bigger picture here, but certainly there is much more scrutiny now and much more talked about with the players as employees. The universities themselves, the presidents, athletic departments have said that's a poison pill for college athletics and college football specifically for many years. I don't really know the economics of it, to to be totally honest with you. And I don't know how much it really helps the situation. I mean, at face value, I can see it helping the situation just in terms of, like I said, having players on salaries and knowing that, okay, everybody gets this amount of salary. I mean, maybe at that point you could have salary caps. I'm not really sure, again, the legalities of how that would work. Um, It would create some type of structure. Uh, But like I said, you're going to have to get benefits. And more importantly, all of a sudden these universities lose their tax exempt status. And that is what they say make it completely unsustainable economically. That is their words. It's not my opinion that schools would no longer be able to to do what they do now in terms of college football. They wouldn't have these stadiums. They wouldn't have these facilities, so on and so forth. We got a question that sort of, you know, delves into this salary signing bonus kind of thing. So I moved it up to this section. It didn't save it for listener questions because I figured we would already be talking about these sorts of things. So this is from John from Oakland. He put Ryan in there, too. Hey, Ryan, Chris, and the Peristyle. I don't know if it was meant for us, but we're going to read it here. Let's assume the recent court filing that bars the NCAA from enforcing the NR rules agreed upon by its member schools and president survives all the appeals by the NCAA legal team. Hypothetical question. Say a school, let's call them the Quackers, raises millions of dollars directly from boosters, surcharges on all sports tickets, and a fixed percentage from its media and athletic revenue deals not controlled by its conference. 
The school's athletic department puts this money into a dedicated account for giving $50,000 quote-unquote fellowships to high school athletes who sign with the Quackers. Basically, a guaranteed quote-unquote signing bonus of $50,000 to the top players out of high school who sign with each of the Quackers men's and women's teams. Is there anything that would now stop this? Fight on, John from Oakland. No, and see, this question is about post-enrollment, which USC already handles their players and their recruits post-enrollment. So, you know, that's one aspect of it. And USC's done a very good job. I mean, that's where you see roster retention. Um, That's more about the players that are on the team at that point. Once you're enrolled, you're part of the university. It's a different animal. Uh, it still raises a lot of questions as opposed to, you know, when we talk about salaries and we talk about whether they are actual employees and not student athletes, so on and so forth. This particular court case is more about pre-enrollment. So what's about the recruits? It's more about inducement. So USC's already got plenty of opportunities lined up for players, but it's you've got to enroll and you've got to be a part of the system before you can get any type of contract via NIL. The issue just with this case and it blowing up NIL is that it blurs or erases the line of inducement because it's saying that the schools themselves, as I understand it, can negotiate these deals sitting down with parents on official visits or unofficial visits. That was prohibited, right? The schools had to say, look, here's our collective. And in USC's case, from what I've been told by multiple collectives, because they have three of them, there's no sort of handing recruits over. It's not like they go on campus for an official visit and then it's like, okay, so for the next couple hours, we're going to drive you down to Manhattan Beach to the House of Victory offices and you're going to meet our folks at... HOV who can talk to you about NIL and talk to you about the many kind of deals and branding. They don't do that. And I don't know that they can't do that. I think that's an issue of compliance and interpretation because I think that has been done and clearly it's already been done. I mean, this is kind of sort of what Tennessee is pushing back on. Tennessee got in trouble, at least part of the issue they had with this latest, the latest issue of breaking NCAA bylaws is that the school representatives themselves were talking about NIL deals and what the collectives could do for those recruits if you commit or if you sign with Tennessee. And so that's the thing that, I mean, there was, they weren't even taking them to the collectives. They were basically saying, here's what the collectives will do for you, as opposed to USC giving an NIL presentation about the possibilities in general of going to USC and all the different brands and the exposure of Los Angeles and look at what Caleb Williams did and look how much this player got. But you can't get into actually negotiating. Here's what we're going to do for you. That has to be the collectives. And then it's like, well, how do the collectives get a hold of these recruits and these players? USC, again, wasn't really involving the collectives with these high school recruits whatsoever. Other schools were clearly, they were 
involving directly the collectives. Tennessee was taking it a step further and just having the university basically say, hey, we've got these people. They've given this much money to us. Here's how much money you'll get if you come here. And the court ruling is saying, hey, listen, you can't have these rules in place in order for these people to negotiate the universities themselves who are trying to sign these players, again, pre-enrollment, without negotiating. And again, for me, I don't see how you can separate negotiating an NIL deal and inducement because you're basically negotiating for why you should go here. Well, I want this much. Well, we can't give you that much, but maybe we can do something else. You know, we've got these nice houses here in this new area and one of our boosters He's actually the head of construction in this area, and he owns this property, and we could set your family up in this house. So while we can't give you this much in cash, we can't give you a new house, and your parents will be able to relocate, et cetera, so on and so forth. So that's really where this lawsuit is changing the game a bit. And again, from the standpoint of what USC's approach has been, they went in the wrong direction with this one because their ideas and even just recently having athletic director Jen Cohen on tunnel vision, she talked about, she felt confident that the NCAA were going to pass bylaws and they were going to make new regulations that were going to bring NIL and how schools deal with NIL closer to what USC was already doing. And that was just, a bad read because clearly this new lawsuit and then this ruling. And again, we haven't seen the end of it all. There's still more lawsuits to come and appeals, etc. But it's a clear shot over the bow that the states are going to be the ones that are going to be doing regulation and they're going to be passing laws. It's not going to be the NCAA. The NCAA just doesn't have the ability to move in that direction. And so, again, this benefits those schools that have been already negotiating deals more directly, if not just having their collectives negotiate and talk to these recruits directly and say, here's our boosters. And you can't do this. I mean, this is part of the NCAA, again, trying to keep some distance uh, boosters away from recruits. And I mean, there's things like, Back in the day, and I can't remember if this has been done recently, where we as media had to sign a disclosure agreement that we were not boosters and we were not um, going to talk to prospective athletes. And Tim Teslon was the athletic director at that point. And I'm reading this, and it's you will not contact prospective student athletes before or after USC practice. I go, that's my freaking job. Why are you having us sign this? This doesn't make any sense. And of course, it was just like, oh, well, you know, don't worry about that part. I'm like, I'm literally telling you, the university, that I'm not going to do exactly what I'm going to do. This was poorly written. This wasn't for us. This was for boosters. But they made us sign it anyways to go in and do practice. And this was during the Clay Helton era. So it wasn't that long ago. But it was an attempt to kind of, you know, put this distance between the university, its boosters, and prospective student-athletes. There's no more There's no more distance there. There's no more line because of NIL 
And because the court is saying, this particular court is saying and ruling that in order for the student athletes to get as much out of NIL as possible, they got to negotiate with the people writing the checks and they got to negotiate with the people that are running the show. And that is the university and or the boosters themselves. We're getting into that point where we're going to go into our break, but I think the big other question now that this ruling has come down and seemingly opened up the floodgates even more is what does USC do or what does USC respond with? Because we've talked about it many times. USC's NIL strategy has not been to pay high school players and they've been waiting for more regulations or more structure. And that always was kind of the vibe you got when you heard Lincoln Riley or a Jennifer Cohen talk about it. Like there will be changes coming. Well, the changes have gone the other way as you, as you mentioned. So I know this is going to be the popular question as to what does USC do? Do they still hold back or do they dive headfirst into it? Like other schools now that it's, I guess, quote unquote, legal or there is no legal ramifications for it, at least in terms of or penalties in terms of what the NCAA can do. So I'm here to tell you, I don't know what they're going to do. I think it's going to be interesting to see what they do. Obviously, they have some decisions to make. They have some discussions to have. Obviously, USC tends to be more cautious than a lot of schools. We know this. So as of right now, I don't I don't really know what USC's response would be if they'll if they'll go dive into it. I think a lot of people maybe expect USC to just start handing it out now. Now that they have, you know, the green light to go and do this, you know, they're just gonna jump right in. I I don't see that being the case. Maybe they'll be reassessing over it's it's happening at an interesting time because you have the dead period about to end. You have these kids coming on campus for spring visits and then obviously official visitor season is right around the corner so that's obviously going to be a big NIL talking point with these these kids and their families when they get on campus for these official visits so i don't know USC strategy moving forward is it going to change is it going to stay the same is it being forced to change i don't know we're going to see i think it's going to be a very interesting spring and summer now that this ruling is out there and how it's going to shape USC's NIL strategy moving forward. And I think that's kind of the last piece that we have to talk about in this cold open is like, what is USC going to do? As of right now, we don't know what USC is going to do, but it's an interesting thing to look at as we go through the next couple months, as I just mentioned with spring and summer and recruiting and visitors coming to campus. USC is going to change their approach, their philosophy, and their model. The question is, to what extent? Is it a 180? Or do they slowly but surely try to adjust and bring in Tommy Group, Conquest Collective, Boosters, people that have donated to House of Victory, and the representatives of those collectives specifically being a part of the visit process because that's 
kind of got to happen in order to be competitive with these other schools. There was a recruit not too long ago, and this is really more Chris's scoop, but I articulated saying this is not the first time where a recruit has reached out to us with questions about USC's NIL. You know, USC hasn't really talked about it, like how they deal with things, how they do things. And other schools have been very clear with how they do things. And so those type of questions have to be erased among the top players that you're recruiting. You got to sit them down and you got to talk opportunities and give them a very clear idea of what you're willing to do for them financially to get them at your university. So I don't think there's going to be enough that will change after this ruling between basically now and the end of June, which is going to be uh, really the first big wave and move towards signing recruits. Certainly if you were to make some missteps with NIL right now, and you overstepped your boundaries, I don't know how there would be any repercussions anyways. The whole it's better to ask for forgiveness and permission is absolutely got to be the philosophy right now. And, and that's what the crux of Tennessee's lawsuit says. It's, listen, the NCAA didn't have enough clarity themselves. So how are you supposed to abide by rules when those rules are vague? There's not enough specificity there, enough detail to really be able to interpret and act accordingly. And the courts agreed with them. So, I mean, does the NCAA go back and say, well, we just need to rewrite these bylaws and regulations to be more clearer? Or again, are they sort of on their last legs and they're more interested in looking forward as a different type of entity that is, you know, representative of, of college football, college athletics in general, and know that, you know, this, this, this fight is a losing fight for them. And it will then become a matter of the states in trying to figure out if there's going to be some type of, uh, you know, understanding. I mean, I think that's going to be very, very difficult. I mean, you look at how states rule uh, differently on various different topics, you know, what's legal and what's them. You just look at the gun laws from state to state. They're com- they're totally different. So I don't know that you're going to find any kind of unification uh, from that standpoint. It might have to be some type of federal thing where, you know, Congress does step in and say, okay, we need some general rules uh, that are the same, you know, from state to state. I, I, I don't have the answer to that, but certainly the question of what USC does going forward, it, they will change. I don't think there's any question about that. They have to change to be competitive. It's just a matter of what degree they change, how much do they bring in the collectives, and, you know, how much of this is going to be uh about having the right people involved. I mean, multiple collectives, that's a question that's been brought up many times. Does that benefit USC having three different collectives? All basically kind of doing the same thing. And we talked about 
potentially having a collective that works more with team retention and current roster and then having a collective that is involved more with the recruiting process and transfers? Um, or do they all become a conglomerate and just come together? There's certainly a lot of different opinions from each of those collectives on how things should go. And we've even seen publicly that displayed in terms of what USC needs and what USC doesn't need. We saw Alex Holmes, who is a somewhat representative of Tommy Group, talk about the lack of donations and the lack of money that USC has. And then Spencer Harris, who runs uh, House of Victory, responding, that's not the big issue. Now, I can say, and I've been asked this many times, you know, does USC have the funds? Do they have the money? Is it an issue of money? Is it an issue of compliance? I've been told from outside the walls of USC and outside those representing UFC collectives that money is not an issue. Now, maybe that's not accurate because it's someone that isn't, you know, inside USC and not a board of trustee. But it is someone that is on the player representation side and someone that knows a lot of USC boosters that felt like money is not an issue, nor is compliance. This was more Lincoln Riley's strategy. Now, that does beg the question of can USC actually continue to have the approach that they do because they believe not from a rule standpoint, that it's wrong to induce high school players with NIL, but just from a philosophical strategy standpoint, that it's not smart to spend your money on high school kids and it would be better to spend your money on transfers. Now, we've talked about this in the past, particularly just looking back at last season, there were plenty of transfers that were busts. I mean, Dorian Singer was probably not worth whatever NIL deal he got. And uh, knowing what I know about USC and their contracts, I think it was a matter of he wasn't going to get a further NIL deal with the performance that he had. Again, NIL deals are not allowed to be performance-based. But let's just be honest about it. If you're not playing well, you're not going to get the visibility And the companies, even if you're going by the spirit of NIL through endorsement, companies are not going to want to work with that player. They want to work with Caleb Williams. Why? Because he's a Heisman Trophy winner. Because he's spectacular. The best player in college football. And that's not because he paints his nails. Not because he's a real nice guy. Not because he's a good student. And I'm not saying he isn't those things. But that's not why companies are lined up to put their apparel on him to have him drive their cars, to have them, uh, you know, wear uh, their jewelry or or anything of that nature. It's all about putting your uh, brand and logo on someone successful that other people look up to. Okay. That's what it comes down to. So yeah, that is very performance-based. So, you know, all of this is very complicated and, you know, it is if, if it's just pure strategy and this is the way Lincoln wants to do it, um, I think he's going to have to change or the high school football recruiting rankings are going to stay relatively the same. USC is going to miss out on a lot more guys than they get. Um, but if you're putting everything on the back end of development and you feel like you can evaluate 
better than than other schools. And you can find those guys that are three-star prospects, and you can sort of beat the math of stars mattering. Mattering? That's not even a word. Stars Stars smattering. Smattering. (laughs) The smattering of stars. Uh, If you feel like you can beat that with your evaluations, then maybe you continue down the path that you've uh, set out on when it comes to NIL and and where you put your money. But, um, you know, did compliance come into consideration for Lincoln Riley when he decided, you know, this is the way we want to do things here? I mean, maybe. Lincoln Riley certainly hasn't explained that to us and not that he has to. So I think, you know, the the end result is there's going to be change because there has to be change. The question is how much change and how fast does USC hold out hope? The NCAA has got to come back. They got a counter punch to this lawsuit and they're going to come back with these really distinct regulations and rules and somehow, some way, uh, the courts will read that and say, well, you know, now now there's no wiggle room. You know, we know exactly what you can and cannot do NIL-wise. And so if you're outside these boundaries and, and these perim- this parameters that the NCAA has set forth, then you are breaking the rules and um, you can't hide behind state law. I don't think so. <laughs> and I sure hope at this point in time, seeing everything that USC has been through with dealing with the NCAA, they would put absolutely zero stock in whatever the NCAA is saying, whatever they're implying, whatever they're suggesting. You would really look inward and maybe try to get some legal advice from the state. Uh, try to, you know, just hire some good lawyers that have been involved with uh, companies that have that have had endorsements. I mean, there's so many different agencies in Southern California. There's plenty of great professional people who are going to understand, you know, the financials of all this. And, um, you know, that ultimately has to be a question too, uh, in terms of sustainability. And and that question is not going to be answered until there's a hard yes or no on probably student athletes being employees or not. Cause again, that's coming down the pike as well. Like we got NIL and we're still at that point where people are arguing over how can NIL be implemented legally, what helps players, what is just going to kill the game. Because, I mean, you know, you can bite your no- nose off to spite your face here. And that's a lot of people's fears. A lot of college football fans fear that, yeah, well, the players are better off now financially, but we've killed the game. You know, we killed the golden goose. So get it while you can. But guess what? You know, 10 years from now, like college football is not what it was. And it's never going to be like that again. And your chance to be a millionaire is completely going to be put on being a professional football player because college football is no longer a billion dollar industry. There's just too much money that's going every which way now. Everybody's got their hand out and um, it sort of killed the game and certainly from a fan experience standpoint, it's killed the game. There's a lot of college football fans that just don't like that this is not an amateur sport anymore. It's pro-am right now, which is on its way to being professional, and then it's just a sort of shadow of what the NFL is, right? Um, you know, do the players really still represent the schools that fans went to 
alums. That's the big connection with college football. I went to that school. I walked down those halls. I sat in that building and took that class that he's taking. Like there's some type of connection there that people have with the school and then with the players that go to that school. But I mean, if they're just there as employees and, you know, maybe there's uh, not the ability for the schools, the, the large majority of them to be able to pay and keep their non-tax status. Uh, you, you, you lose, you know, so much of these schools being able to compete at that level. You know, it just it changes the game quite a bit to where it's not recognizable anymore. And you've got these weird negotiations going on. It becomes more about money. And that's why a lot of people, such as myself, I don't really watch the NFL. You know, and the NFL is still making a lot of money. There's a lot of little people watching it. But certainly it's uh, it doesn't feel the same as college football. And college football can't just be another NFL with just younger players. Like, that's not going to really work. Just like, you know, minor league baseball is never going to be on par with Major League Baseball, it's always going to be sort of a shadow of Major League Baseball. And so, you know, even if it's not farm teams and, and they're still college football players, but they're being paid and they're employees and it's just completely different. Um, and they're going from school to school just to get salaries. And then there's no uh, issue. There's no transfer issues. Um, I guess at that point, you probably have contracts that you would have to stay at a school. But again, legalities, I don't know. Is that considered performance-based? Probably to some extent. So is that legal? Well, that's going to have to be made legal. So then you have actual full contracts with uh, players being at schools for four years with maybe something written in if the NFL says that they'll draft you uh, in their draft grade at this particular spot, then you can get out of that contract. I don't know. But it's definitely going to feel different. It's going to look different. And then it's probably just not going to be nearly as successful as popular as it is now and thus you're not going to have the same tv rights so those billions of dollars are not going to be there merchandising will go down so then the players get paid less so then all of a sudden we're down back to square one where they might as well be amateur because they're they're only making thousands of dollars instead of the hundreds of thousand dollars a million dollars that they can make right now so i guess you do understand why there is a little bit of that get it while the getting is good because we know at this point, we are cooking the goose that laid the golden egg. Gotta love a golden goose reference. Gerard, that is going to wrap up the cold open. And that's also going to wrap up the first half of our show, which means you're, we're going to go to the break. So we'll be right back after a little mariachi. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. 
from the launcher online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. All right, Gerard, we're back. You know, very NIL heavy in the first half of the show, so... Why don't you say we just take it nice and easy and breezy in the second half? No no lawyers, no court orders, no rulings, no employment regulations, just some good old-fashioned recruiting, Gerard. We broke the cold open. Yeah, we broke it clean open. But now we're going to jump into a topic that I got – that I bumped from last week because last week's episode just kept going. And going and going. And it's something I wanted to talk about because we're getting into 2025. We're getting into the dead period ending. So I think this is a good place to have the discussion about what are the biggest needs for the 2025 recruiting cycle for USC. What are the positions that USC needs to fill in and hit hard for 2025 moving forward? I think – We have several on the list, but I think the number one that jumps out to me would be defensive line because you're probably losing Bear Alexander. You're probably losing Isaiah Rakes. Well, you are losing Isaiah Rakes. He has one more season to go, and you haven't really recruited that well on the defensive line. You signed three last year. That was a a good little close, but for the most part, you've struggled to consistently sign D-line. You need a good class. You need a big class. You need a, a sizable class for 2025 moving forward to kind of 
build that foundation, kind of like what Josh Henson has done with the O-line room. I'm not saying you need five, but you need to bring in some bodies to really replenish. And you're moving into this era where you're getting bigger for the Big Ten, so you need to get some size, some more size, because you know, you're know you having to rely on the portal this year to bring in that size because it wasn't on your roster before. So defensive line, specifically interior defensive line, has to be near the top of the list. For me, Gerard, I'm, I'm assuming it is for you as well. Yeah, definitely. And there is the potential, because Barry Alexander is going to be junior next year, that he will leave. You've already lost uh, Dejon Benton, Stanley Ta'afu, uh, to the transfer portal, or at least we don't think Stanley Ta'afu is on the team right now. Um, we don't know what's going to happen with Anthony Lucas. Does he move inside? Does he stay as sort of an edge rusher? Uh, we'll see what happens with that. But Dejan Lafitte is really uh, the only interior defensive lineman that you have um, that's going to be a returner after next season, in addition to the three that uh, committed um, in the 2024 class, uh, which uh, was big. And, you know, I think, like Chris said, it was a nice little cap to the, the class, you know, getting um, Dejay. Abasiri, uh, who's uh, 6'5", 290-pound defensive tackle uh, that was committed to Minnesota, and they were able to go up in the Great Lakes and be able to get a big body that showed some promise, a little raw, but definitely a, a big body that showed some promise in the interior. Carlon Jones, who they closed out with, beat out Ohio State for 6'3", 285 pounds out of Bay City, Texas, a four-star guy that really climbed up the rankings a little like Braylon Shelby, towards the end of the year and you watch his film and it's very impressive film. They got Ratna, Ratmana, um, Bula Bellavu, who 6'4", 260 pounds, was commi- committed to Arizona, then turned around and committed to Washington. And then you saw the Washington staff disperse after uh, they were hired by Alabama. And so he decommits and ends up committing to USC. So three young interior, they're all interior defensive linemen. There's no, question about that in terms of whether these guys are potential five techniques or or hybrids or whatever. These are guys that are going to be interior defensive linemen. And so you did get some numbers there, which certainly help you. Um, through the portal, Isaiah Rakes is going to be big, but as Chris said, he's a one and done. And then you got Nate Clifton, who's also a one and done. Mm-hmm. So you're basically bringing in five, but you've lost quite a big, bo- uh, quite a few bodies, and you were already in the hole trying to find impact players on the interior defensive line. So I think that is absolutely a big need. If you could get three, maybe even four guys yeah. that you feel like can play defensive tackle, um, be a big five technique, or and this is kind of the important one: get a nose tackle uh, because you've got Isaiah Rakes. He's going to be your nose tackle potentially. They maybe get somebody here in the second window of the portal. I think they still definitely want to get defensive linemen in the second portal. Um, so there's potential there. And that's going to be interesting because the guys that enter the portal, you're going to have Eric Henderson be able to recruit them. And thus far on the high school football recruiting trail, we've seen him be quite an impact. You have players already sending official visits. You have several top defensive linemen that have taken unofficial visits and other defensive linemen that are very highly rated, but specifically in the Southeast slated to take unofficial visits this spring. So getting those guys just on campus, being able to recruit them, you figure if there are going to be some big names in the future here in the second portal, 
on the defensive line that USC will have a chance at them just because Eric Henderson has been very dynamic, at least getting in front of top recruits. And certainly uh, being able to get a visit from a transfer is like half the battle. That's a big deal. Just get them mm-hmm. on campus because we know if you get them on campus first, that might be the beginning and the end of that recruitment. But on the high school trail, uh, we already have some players that are talking about taking official visits to USC. Uh, Brandon Brown, the 6'1", 285-pound nose tackle from Melbourne, Florida, already committed to Texas, but came out here for an unofficial visit with California Power and went from saying, you know what, I don't really know anything about USC, not really talking much about wanting to learn about USC, to saying, yeah, USC is going to be an official visit for me. I'm penciling in an official visit to USC. Um, You have uh, just today, uh, we learned that Malik Autry uh, committed to Auburn. A big nose tackle, 6'5", 320 pounds, set an official visit to USC. Kevin Wynn has talked about setting an official visit to USC. Another you know, 6'3", 6'4", 320, 330 pound nose tackle. So that's three nose tackles. That's three guys that body type wise, USC has come nowhere close the last two cycles of bringing any of those guys and having them on campus. Now, thus far, they've only had Brandon Brown on campus unofficially. And again, that piggybacked on the pylon five on five tournament. Uh, But if they're able to get some of these guys there unofficially on their own dime and bring them back for official visits, you got potential landing one of these guys Uh, on the defensive side with, you know, more defensive tackle types, three techniques, guys that maybe they slide out, play some five, justice Terry, the five star from Manchester, Georgia, six, five, two seventy five, committed to Georgia already. That's a tall order to get a guy flipped from Georgia, he's already committed to Georgia, been committed to Georgia a year already, but nevertheless says he wants to take an official visit to USC. Uh, Elijah Griffin, the number one ranked defensive lineman in the country, another 6'5", 280-pound defensive lineman from Georgia. Uh, He's from Savannah. He's from Clay Heltonville. Um, He says he's going to come out uh, for an unofficial visit, probably sometime in March, and follow up with an official visit. And then you have Christian Garrett, who's another 6'4", 280-pound defensive tackle, a little further down the list. Uh, rankings wise, but this is the other thing. It may be the more important thing about interior defensive line recruiting right now in the high school ranks is that USC's cultivated a bunch of options. There's a bunch of four star guys talking that they want to be on campus. They want to visit USC either unofficially or officially. Uh, there are, you know, other players which are sort of quasi maybe defensive linemen, maybe five technique guys, maybe they play a little more on the edge. Corey Adams is someone that you just spoke to, Chris, uh, from New Orleans, a three-star defensive lineman who just recently uh, offered a scholarship by USC, 6'3", 245 pounds, uh, a player that, you know, again, just another body, another option that you can potentially have. You're not putting all your eggs into the Edric basket. Yeah, I think the Coach Henny effect is fully in effect with USC and I don't think it's I don't think USC is going to have an issue. Let's say they're going to they want to sign four defensive linemen. Simply with the fact that coach Eric Henderson is their D-line coach and out there recruiting for them, I don't think they're going to have an issue finding four guys that want to sign with USC. The question is, are they going to be able to sign some higher end defensive line prospects? Yeah, it's definitely – can they get a big fish in there? They're not yes. going to get all of them. They're no, no, not no, no, no. going to get Justice Terry and Elijah Griffin, and they may not get either. But 
maybe you're able to get Kevin Wynn. Maybe you're able to convince Malik Autry to come to USC. It's definitely fathomable that they could, they're going to lose out, I would say, on more guys they're going to get. But you're just looking for maybe a Christian Garrett with maybe a couple other guys like a Corey Adams. And maybe there's another player in there like a Chad Woolfork who's an edge. You can maybe put his hand down the ground. You, you're just looking for a combination of some good impact players. You know, they got Cameron Fountain last class, but that's just one guy. And uh, they do close with, you know, we talked about it just in the beginning of this topic. They did close relatively well with three decent players. That group, if you just would have added in a high four-star guy, it just changes the, the dynamic of, okay, we got some good bodies. We're still missing that Bear Alexander. We're still missing the guy that is the gravitational point that sort of is the face of the class. And that is where you see Eric Henderson potentially changing the narrative. Like, do you need to get a class that is so much better um, player for player than last year's class. Truthfully, no, because you got three very good players. Carlin Jones, very good player, mm-hmm. right? Um, Ramana, very good player. Like, you got some solid players there, but you didn't necessarily get the guy that you envisioned being your potential first, second-round pick. You know, you're Leonard Williams, you're Sean Cody, you're four-star, five-star guy. And that's the the sort of the tipping point where USC just has to get one of them. You know, you don't have to hit every shot. All you got to do is just make one. And so that's what's interesting about this group, because while USC could miss out on most of these players, they really only have to land one of these guys, an Elijah Griffin, a Christian Garrett, a Justice Terry, a Kevin Wynn. And then you could potentially surround them with some other type of players that, you know, are some evaluation guys. One of the things that Eric Henderson has said, even to his recruits, is he prides himself on being able to evaluate players. And that's why he goes into Texas and tries to get a guy like Dylan Battle. You know, Dylan Battle, we haven't even talked about. 6'3", 330-pound uh, um, defensive, really a nose tackle uh, out of Texas. Uh, and a guy that's uh, unrated right now by 24-7 sports, and he doesn't have a composite ranking either, and a player that wants to get on campus and unofficially visit USC. So there's just so many more options than USC has had over the years. Uh, So many more players on the interior defensive line that you have to recruit. And again, just not putting all your eggs in the Edric basket. I think that's a good place to move into the next position of need for this class and we're kind of going the opposite direction we're talking about the big beefy guys now we're going to the offense and wide receiver I think has to be an emphasis for this cycle because obviously in 2023 you signed the best high school wide receiver class in the country let's just put it out there you signed Deuce Robinson, you signed Zachariah Branch, you signed Makai Lemon. That's two five-stars and a guy who should have been a five-star. And then you throw on top Jacoby Lane, who was kind of thrown in there at the end, you know, a four-star guy, and, you know, based off the Holiday Bowl, has as much hype as any of those guys based off what he was able to do. 
So you you signed 2023 outstanding class. And then 2024 was very different because you wanted to sign three and you only signed one. And that was including a flip on signing day. So it was the exact opposite of what went through in 2023. So 2025, you need to come back with a vengeance and you need to sign some bodies. I would say you would at least need three wide receivers and they're hoping they can get back into the discussion of signing a top 50 guy, top 100 guy. I don't think they're going to sign multiple five stars like they did in 2023, but you need an elite guy because you swung and you missed last year. And it was just strange that they swung and they missed and they weren't able to pull somebody given that it's a Lincoln Riley offense, you know, Dennis Simmons produced some pretty good wide receivers, that offense, yada, yada, yada. But here we were, we're talking about they signed one guy, DJ Jordan on campus now, Good local signee, four-star guy. But again, you only signed one, you lost one, and now I think you got to go heavy, and you need you need a good class of wide receivers in 2025 because, as Jar likes to point out, you have a gap now kind of with uh, your older guys or you don't have any old guys in the room, and none of your hotshot young guys are you know draft eligible, so you're going to get them back, but you're not going to have any sort of depth if you can't get some bodies in for 2025. Wide receiver is a really difficult position to project because I think they got to bring in four guys Mm. personally. I mean, when you break it down, they lost their entire junior class. It's gone, right? That's, like five guys right there, Taj Washington, Michael Jackson, Mario Williams, Brendan Rice, and Dorian Singer. They were all eligibility-wise in that junior category. So on the team, you've got Kyron Hudson, who will be a junior next year. And then you've got that freshman class that you talked about, Makai uh, Lemon, Zachariah Branch, Jacoby Lane, and Deuce Robinson. Deuce, quasi-receiver Robinson. You bring in... Jordan Xavier, and right now the only transfer that you have is Jaden Richardson coming in from Tufts, right? So that's, you know, what, seven, eight wide receivers you basically have lined up. You're going to probably try to bring somebody else in in the second portal. They'll probably try to bring in maybe two receivers in the second portal because that would at least balance out uh, the depth chart to some extent in terms of eligibility and your classes and what have you. And you kind of want to try to backfill that those junior senior um, classes with some receivers because you just have you have nobody there. You know, there's just just none. Is everybody is the freshman class? It's going to be a sophomore next year uh, outside of Xavier Jordan. So yeah, I think with the 2025 class, it feels like you kind of need at least three, if not four, wide receivers. Um, you could argue even more. I, I think. I mean, from a number standpoint with the offense they run, I think you're looking for 11. Um, but, you know, I, I there's always debate, you know, as to how many receivers you really need, how many you want. But uh, what's interesting about it is that they really haven't been super aggressive on the recruiting trail with receivers. I mean, for the longest time, they had only offered like nine receivers until we got into, you know, late November into December and they had that uh, contact period, 
where they went out and they were able to offer a few more guys. I think at the top of the list, out of the high school ranks, certainly uh, Andrew Marsh uh, from Katy, Texas, down in Houston area, has been kind of at the top of the list for them. We've mentioned him maybe being another Draylon Miller type. I don't know where that's going to go. There's a little bit of NIL uh, cloud hanging over that recruitment. Uh, Philip Bell, USC's in a street fight with Ohio State. Ohio State has basically just been picking who they want to commit. I mean, their defensive back class is like insane right now. Uh, so, you know, they're certainly uh, being aggressive in NIL and um, Philip Bell will be a guy that you're going to have to fight for if you're USC. USC has the home court advantage in that one. And, you know, mom's a big fan of USC and, you know, Philip Bell loves the, the, the USC offense under Lincoln Riley, but um, Ohio State's not going to make that one easy. Um, and then, you know, somebody who just recently popped up on the radar to a large extent is uh, Raiden Vines-Bright, who's uh, originally from uh, the Phoenix, Arizona area and has transferred over to IMG, and he set an official visit for USC already. So it's a smaller group in terms of numbers, not quite as many numbers as I would think USC would have out. However, the other thing which doesn't help USC, and this is what really hurts not signing more players last year, at the wide receiver position is that this is not a great year at the outset for wide receivers. Uh, I think the highest rated player in California is Chris Lawson out of San Francisco, a four star who's going to be difficult for USC to get away from Oregon. And they just don't recruit the Bay area very well. And they were kind of a little late to his recruitment. Now he's supposed to take an unofficial visit for spring practice down here in I think March. And so that will be the first time USC, I think, has that uh, has him on campus. I don't think he's ever been to USC before for a visit. Um, so, yeah, the, there's not a lot of local talent at the receiver position. The other thing, though, is at the same time, receiver like defensive back, there are going to be guys their senior year that are going to develop that you might want and you can recruit uh, like USC did last year but to chris's point weren't able to convince anybody after an eight five year kind of disappointing even though the offense was still playing well um they weren't able to get guys like uh zachary williams um from uh, chase or excuse me sarah high school he was already committed to utah and that ship had sort of sailed um there was a few different players that they kind of kicked the tires on uh, and they just weren't all that interested so it's a it's an interesting position, and it shouldn't be a position that's difficult uh, to recruit at. You know, certainly with that 2023 class, you know, Chris mentions, you know, they kind of threw in at the last minute four-star Jac <laughs> Jacoby Lane. And it's like that, you know, you, you talk about the health of recruiting at certain positions when you've got, you know, Deuce Robinson and Makai Lemon and Zachariah Branch already committed. And it's like, well, we kind of need another guy. Well, we'll bring in this four-star uh, from Arizona who could end up being, you know, as good as maybe anybody that we have uh, in that class. Um, you'd like to see the same be said about defensive line. And so we'll see if USC ever gets there. But that's kind of the difference between uh, the health of recruiting at one position as opposed to another position. But going into this year, 
it's really kind of difficult to figure out like, okay, we're we're the guys that um, they're really making a big push for, you know, they're, they're kind of on their heels a little bit with Philip Bell and Ohio state. Some of the national guys feel like Ohio state may lead in that recruitment. I don't know if I've gotten that vibe, but I haven't really talked to Philip in like a month or two. So I can't really say, but I know that, you know, USC certainly kind of held court there for a while and, he he has to be considered USC's to lose. But then, you know, that sort of leads us even talking about cornerback and his teammate DJ Lee and that position, which I think is another position of need, not to skip around too much here, but it's not necessarily a position of need from a number standpoint, the way wide receiver is. But I think it's a position need. If you're going to have a really good class in 2025, you need to go get an alpha field cornerback in 2025 so you're officially throwing that that section in there right now just letting you know DJ Lee is the segue and USC's lost some ground on him but that is one guy that comes to mind Dorian Brew is another player that USC's working hard for I mentioned Ohio State recruiting kind of insane right now they get Devin Sanchez which was an easy prediction to make because I talked to him at OT7 and he basically told me he favored Ohio State a lot. Um, they're able to have right now, I think they have the number one, number two, and number 10 cornerbacks committed in the 2025 class. And Brew is originally from Ohio State, and his mom is in the Ohio State Athletics Hall of Fame. So there's a lot of people that think that uh, Dorian Brew's headed to Ohio State. But he does have an in with Doug Belk, and they do have a good relationship, already been on campus and taken an unofficial visit. That happened right after Doug Belk went down to Texas uh, to visit him. He has relocated to Conroe, Texas. And so there's some traction there. USC's, you know, worked a little bit. But if they don't get him on campus until that official visit, a lot of time between now and that official visit. And there's going to be a lot of schools working to get him on campus multiple times. So I don't know if the familiarity with USC at that point, the official visit will be enough to make that move. But um, certainly I I feel like he's pretty open right now just because, I mean, Ohio State's like, how many cornerbacks are you going to take? I'm sure, you know, one of those guys will say, oh, you maybe play safety or what have you. Um, But uh, there's potential there. Uh, Jonte Gilbert is another player that's been at USC multiple times, a a highly rated four-star cornerback out of Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Clemson is looked to be the lead dog there in his recruitment. Um, but that's the that's the one position where, you know, quality over quantity, and you'd like to see USC really bring in somebody that was uh, an actual true field corner. And I don't know that DJ Lee's even that guy. He's 6'4", 185. I mean, he's unique because of how big he is. You know, he's he's kind of like Malachi Crawford. He's just like a legitimate 6'4", not, not a – you know, well, he's like 6'2". No, he's legitimately 6'4", plays cornerback. But when I compare him to other guys that are the elite guys nationally, Devin Sanchez is the easy comparison because you saw them both at OT7. And I saw them both go head-to-head against Jeremiah Smith, who was the number one rated wide receiver in the 2024 class. And Jeremiah Smith as a wide receiver was really good. He's the real deal. And, you know, I watched Devin Sanchez take him one-on-one and do a very good job against him. Actually had the last play of their game. I think it was their opening matchup of the tournament 
Um, it was uh, Trillion Boys against South Florida Express. And Devin Sanchez broke up the pass in the end zone. And he, I think he had two pass breakups against Jeremiah Smith, whereas Dijon Lee was a little lost. He was swimming against Jeremiah Smith. And not just when Jeremiah Smith got the ball, because I think there was only like two targets uh, for Jeremiah Smith when they went head-to-head. But there were some other times where he wasn't targeted where Jeremiah Smith got wide open against Dijon Lee. So you saw like the difference between – whether it's just like been there, done that, and maybe Devin Sanchez just been around and seen those type of players before and played against them, and it was kind of new to Dejon Lee. Dejon Lee has not like been like a full-time starter for Michigan Viejo this whole time, and he only begun starting to play a little bit of receiver last season and was kind of slowly getting that. So different you know progression in terms of their games and what have you and that's important to point out but like in terms of like an elite guy i mean i watched devin smith or devin sanchez and i'm like yeah that dude's elite that dude's straight up elite and that's what usc kind of needs to at least have one of those guys in this class i think that would be a, a, a big deal for them because you look at the roster and you look at the depth chart and the, and the players not only they're bringing back but just you know the players that they have on that roster Jacoby Covington saw flashes from him last year, but it was such a bad defense. It's, you know, hard to get excited about the defensive secondary. Even if Damani Jackson was coming back, which he's not, I mean, we'd still be talking about Damani Jackson like he was coming out of high school, talking about potential. Well, you know, he can run 10 1 and, you know, he's 6'2, 200 pounds, but not really a whole lot put on the amount of productions he's had. Sierra Wright, same thing, not with the team. So we kind of don't expect him to be with the team, but a guy that we would be talking about potential right now, Prophet Brown, uh, Malik Crawford, Traquan Fagans, that's kind of it outside the guys that they're bringing through um, from the portal. But yeah, there's certainly a lot to be um, taken on the recruiting trail. I think, you know, just even from a number standpoint, Probably want two to three guys. I would say maybe three. Uh, but I think, you know, there's got to be some quality there, and you need to go get a guy. If you lose out on Dijon Lee, it's going to be tough to, like, not try to have a replacement for him. Not having someone in the class you can say, well, you know what, we we, we lost on Dijon Lee, and we know he's a high four-star, you know, one of the top-rated players in the state, but we got Dorian Brew. Then there's not going to be a lot of criticism there. It's like, listen – went out and you got Dorian Brew and you, you might end up being a better player than Dijon Lee. But if you go out and you bring in, you know, the, te- the kind of players that they they basically brought in in the recruiting trail um, and, and not a knock on them, but, you know, Braylon Collinley, um, Jarvis Boatwright, the guys that are lower ranked and you're, you're not replenishing with the higher rated guys, um, that's going to be a, a bit of a criticism uh, in the 2025 class. You know, 2024, not as much you know, with Marcel Williams, uh, and you're able to get um, Isaiah Rubin, which, you know, there's still some questions about him academically, uh, but nevertheless, some solid players, you know. I, I still don't know if I would say elite, um, but this class, I feel like that's needed more. Fine, not the final, but the the other key defensive piece with interior defensive line, and then your alpha field cornerback is a Mike linebacker. Now, USC signed a pretty good collection of linebackers 
last season between Desmond Stevens, Elijah Newby. You got Jaden Walker there at the end. But you have some big-time options that you've been recruiting for a while now for 2025. And Noah McHale and then Riley Pettyjohn out there in McKinney, Texas, who you've been recruiting for a good while now. And then Christian Thatcher, you have that USC crystal ball for. So Mike Linebacker seems to be a big target for 2025 and getting that elite middle linebacker for this scheme and for the Big Ten. And you put in a lot of work on Noah and Riley, and you know, you're hoping that can pay off for this class because you know getting one of those guys would be really really huge and being kind of one of those focal points for this defensive class yeah and i mean noah mckayle is at the top of the list Mm -hmm. he was made a priority by danton lynn uh going and seeing him twice as usc defensive coordinator i think it was like the day of or after he was named defensive coordinator he was out to see noah mckayle at Bonita High School. And so the only thing about Noah McHale's recruitment is, unfortunately, I kind of get a little bit of a DJ Lee vibe. I get a bit of USC, childhood favorite, hometown school. If USC, everything was clicking and it was a healthy program, he'd be a guy that would be locked in. Maybe not publicly committed yet, but certainly behind the scenes, everybody would know, yeah, Noah McHale's going to go to USC. And that's not the case. And what has happened is that USC felt like they were the early leader, and then Alabama took over. Sort of like with Dijon Lee, USC is the early leader, and then somewhere along the line with Washington making a championship run, Washington became the leader. And the thing is, now that USC has a new coaching staff, uh, they haven't necessarily taken control with those schools, not necessarily entirely out of the picture, but certainly there's been a lot of turnover at both those schools, a lot of turnover at Washington for Dejon Lee and a lot of turnover at Alabama for Noah McHale. So the fact that USC hasn't like grabbed control back and become the leader is a, makes me a little hesitant, you know, going into the summer. Um, I do Kind of question in terms of when the kids talk about development and, you know, they want to see USC improve as a defense. And the question is, well, how much improvement can you see during spring practices? You know, how much improvement can you see between now and the end of June or July when you're going to commit when the season hasn't come yet? So is USC already been written off? Can they still talk their way back into those recruitments and, and get these players Uh, That remains to be seen. But the Mike linebacker position, as Chris said, USC signed uh, some good linebackers, a a little under the radar, guys like Desmond Mm -hmm. Stevens, who was playing defensive back and now is going to move up and play linebacker. You know, are any of these guys actual Mike linebackers? That's the big question. Are they Mike linebackers? Are they Will linebackers? Does Desmond Stevens or Jaden Walker uh, move up? and play on the defensive line and play more as outside linebackers in the system. Desmond Stevens now is 6'4", 225 pounds. So there's a lot more potential that he could potentially be on the edge at that height and that weight. Um, Jaden Walker played in high school as an edge rusher. 
Now he's a little, he's a little smaller. He's like 6'2, 6'3, 210, 215 pounds. But that's the last time, you know, we had a, a basically a listing from him from high school. I mean, Desmond Stevens listing was still like, I think it was 208 at some point. So, you know, we haven't talked to Jaden Walker here uh, lately uh, to, to update that. He could be 225 pounds, 230 pounds now and 6'4. So that might change. But nevertheless, the big question and big need in 2025 is going to be the Mike linebacker position. And this is a position that I don't want to say USC has put all their eggs in one basket, but they have definitely not offered as many players as you know you've seen with the defensive line and some of the other positions where they're really cultivating a lot of options um maybe it's just one of those things where you know there's no mikhail they like him they're going to recruit him but they know that they've slipped for him to some extent and that's where christian thatcher comes in christian thatcher just unofficially visited usc and the feeling is that usc is the team to beat now there's some stuff that can change, and there's reasons he hasn't already committed. Um, of course, he wants to take official visits, just like Noel McHale, just like Riley Pettijan. Uh, but there's more to it because some of these guys will do what Justice Terry did, do um, what some of the other players on the list have already done and committed to a school and then take official visits, right? I mean, Julian Lewis has already committed to USC, and he's taken – several unofficial visits, and he'll probably take more uh, than just a USC official visit. That remains to be seen, but I would say the probability is there. So it's not like Christian Thatcher couldn't commit and then still take visits, or even with Noah McHale. So there are some other things that are kind of hangups right now with that. But I would say, you know, Getting a true Mike linebacker, somebody that you feel like can run the defense, that is going to be a big deal. I think out of that group, Riley Pettijan is probably the biggest reach right now. It seems like Texas is the school to beat for him. And while his former teammate, Brian Jackson, is at USC, um, it does feel like his recruitment is going more the way of Xavier Vilzamis went, who was also at McKinley High School, was also – Brian Jackson's teammate and also unofficially visited USC and just basically dropped USC completely after that unofficial visit. Um, it just wasn't considering USC anymore. And then he subsequently committed to Florida. So that's more of what we get from Riley Pettijan. But as Chris said, they've recruited him for a long time. They've made some end runs at McKinley. They're recruiting several players at McKinley, even in the 2026 class. So we'll see where that goes. We'll see what happens. Um, there's certainly, you know, the cold open <laughs> and everything that comes with the cold yeah. open in terms of NIL. And, uh, again, USC is going to change. Uh, it's just a matter of what extent and how aggressive they are. And, you know, all things are equal, and USC is doing what Tennessee's doing and doing what Oregon's doing. And, of course, there's more money for some schools. We've talked about Oregon and Nike Um you know, if you've got uh, a, a billionaire, multi-billionaire that is just wants to have a good football team and live vicariously through their old college, then you're going to be in an advantage when it comes to NIL, the way things are shaping up right now. But as I said, it doesn't sound like USC is, um, you know, that far behind from a resource standpoint. Uh, at least that's what I've been told. And so the good news is 
they can turn on that spigot and go head to head with these other programs like AM and what have you. And I mean, if all things are equal, then yeah, you, you, you potentially are in it for some players that we're kind of writing off. I mean, we don't know what USC recruiting looks like in an NIL era where there's an even playing field. Like we know what USC recruiting looks like back in the Pete Carroll era. We know what it looks like with Lane Kiffin. We know what it looks like even with Steve Sarkeesian, which Steve Sarkeesian, by the way, signed the number one recruiting class in the nation when he came to USC. So, you know, if you kind of bring the NIL era in and you add in the transfers, which can supplement certain positions, which maybe regionally you don't have that advantage of, which I would say defensive line, having going in the Southeast, a lot of the defensive linemen, it just seems like it's very hard to pry them uh, from the Southeast. And that, you know, does that change because of NIL? I mean, you know, we're hearing a lot about families being relocated, et cetera. That's another disadvantage that USC has from that standpoint, because it's just difficult to find, you know, living space in LA. That's just not exorbitant, just like ridiculous rent prices or, or just the houses uh, cost so much money. Now there's Meredith Slosher. So, you know, you never know. Hey, hey. You could swoop in and NIL and find some, some free housing uh, for some recruits families. But um, you know, that's something that at face value is a little bit of a disadvantage. It's much easier to go replace uh, or, or relocate someone to Tuscaloosa or Texas or, or, or many of these other states where the college towns, Gainesville, you know, it doesn't cost a whole lot to live in those type of places. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, maybe you still can throw enough money where, you know, people can 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 get by and make some things happen. And they're living in Southern California as opposed to the boonies and um, you might be able to get some, some players that you couldn't get uh, in other eras of, of USC football and, and NIL becomes something that actually works to USC's advantage. We just don't know yet. We haven't seen that. We absolutely have not seen that. We, we have seen that maybe to some extent with the transfer portal and USC doing very well there and picking up some players, but you know, in the latest transfer market uh, with that first window we did see usc get beat out for some players i mean will H howard was a good example at the quarterback position which you would think you know just all things being even why are you going to ohio state over usc but he did and so you know there's still that question of like okay how much again is it strategy how much is you know will howard isn't worth that much money um how much of it is you know the money not being there Again, I'm told that's not an issue, but hey, the, the 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 proof is in the pudding, right? I mean, if you're not landing those players, there is a reason for it. So we just have not seen uh, that spigot open and USC going out there and negotiating deals with high school kids and what that looks like. And, you know, how many of those guys down south that you'd never have a shot at on the defensive line do you potentially have a shot at now? And that would obviously change the dynamic quite a bit of the football team and um, the the limitations you have in creating a, a recruiting class, which again, regionally, you know, you're going to have quarterbacks out here. You're going to have certain positions that you can recruit in Southern California, California, uh, Arizona, Las Vegas, 
Um, but defensive line, specifically interior defensive line, is not going to be one of those positions. But with NIL, could that be a position where you, with money, <laughs> induce and lure players out here? Because now it's, uh, according to the courts, it's not something you can get in trouble for. I guess that's the best way to put it. You know, is it legal? Well, it's not something you can get in trouble for. The courts say that the NCAA can't make those rules. Now, does the NCAA come back and make other rules and then, you know, do some saber rattling and say, hey, we've made clarity now. And then USC embraces that. I, I, I would say that that would not be the wisest thing, but I'm not an administrator, a bureaucrat, a politician or a lawyer. So what do I know? I'm just a college football recruiting analyst. You're a damn good one, Gerard. Oh, thank you. And you're a damn good one. I think that will wrap up this section. We can move on to... We're going to move on before we talk about one position. You put a question mark behind and I put in, you're choosing violence? Yes, and (laughs) the position is quarterback and... I'm not saying they're going to lose. What are you implying, Chris? What I'm you just know? saying it's important, obviously, to hold on to Julian Lewis. But you need a quarterback in this class. That's all I'm saying. I'm just saying it's important that you didn't sign one last year. I know you got one through the portal, but you need to sign one this year. And obviously, they have one committed. So all's good, right, Gerard? All is gravy? All's good. Right now, everything's copacetic, and we're just going to leave sleeping dogs. I mean, not dogs. Uh, uh, recruits lie. Uh, no, no dogs. Nothing about bulldogs. No, no, nothing. I don't. I don't mean that. Next question. The next segment is just just a run through of the the spring schedule, which came out recently. Spring practices are going to begin on March nineteenth. The next day. USC is going to hold their pro day event, which should be a spectacle because Caleb Williams has announced that he is not throwing at the combine. He will be throwing at his pro day event. So we would expect it to be filled with a bunch of scouts coming out there to look at him throw. I mean, even though obviously none of those teams, not all of those teams are picking number one, obviously, but still scouts are going to be out there to check out the projected number one overall pick, throw the pigskin around. You have the spring game is slated for April 20th, 420. Gerard, 420. Let's go. Let's go. And, yeah, and we'll have multiple visitors on campus throughout the the spring. And we'll have – and I'll read some of those off. Some uh, We'll read some of those off in just a minute unless there's something you want to add about the, the spring schedule coming up, Gerard. It's, uh, it's a little later. Uh, spring ball, I believe, the past couple of years has started in like the first week of March, correct? Um, maybe a week earlier. I mean, I can't, I can't say off the top of my head. They all blend together for me. They all <laughs> blend <March>. together. <laughs> it feels like it's later, and I know it's later because it actually cuts in to the May evaluation period, which, unless something has changed from a calendar standpoint, the last time I looked. The May evaluation period actually starts, and it's always started uh, at least last, I don't know, five, six years, April 15th. And that's the first day that college coaches can go back on the road. It's a contact period. They can go back on the road, and they can do academic and uh, athletic evaluations of recruits. So 
I don't know from a rule standpoint if it's going to be uh, quite as engaging as the contact period they had in January where you saw Lincoln Riley taking pictures with recruits at the high schools, uh, the assistant coaches meeting with not only recruits, but some of their parents at the high schools, um, you know, kind of quasi in-home visits, which have led to a lot of these uh, in-home, or excuse me, these unofficial visits and official visits being scheduled. So I don't know if May Evaluation is going to be that hands-on if if there's been, you know, rule change just in general with contact periods. I think so. I think that's kind of the rule. Usually you've got the quiet, dead, and contact period, and that's that's just a journal, whatever that period is, those are the rules and this is what you can and cannot do. So in previous years, it's all been bump rule and you can kind of say hi to a kid, but it seems like you can do a lot more now. You can actually meet with some of these young men and it's it's having an impact on the recruiting process. Um, so the spring game is five days into that. So you're basically getting a week after the contact period begins where they're going to be in spring ball and then they'll hit in May. So that's interesting. The back end of May, remember, is when official visits start. So that last week, um, you already have some official visits being scheduled for that May 30, 31st uh, weekend. And so you have your four weekends uh, in the summer. And so it's going to be that back end weekend uh, in May. And then you're going to have first week of June, second week of June, third week of June. The actual last week of June, as of right now, uh, is actually a dead period. Um, or, yeah, it's the dead period. So that's, you're not going to have um, all the visits kind of in June. And then there is a sort of a May weekend like they had last year. Um, as of right now, it's actually the last uh, week of June is, is now considered a dead period. And I think they still have that one week at the end of July that is a uh, quiet period where you can have um, players that can unofficially visit. So you have the barbecues and the you know Texas A&M pool party weekends and, and kids come in to do those unofficial visits. So that's interesting um, just in terms of, you know, how everything is set up, having March um, – the the practice dates a little later in the month uh, than they had been some of that i would explain as more than likely just the defensive staff and trying to get everything uh situated with them and making sure like the practices are um you know set up a certain way uh they're probably still doing some winter drills with some of the kids uh you are going to have kids back on campus taking unofficial visits in early march as well so it does free up the staff to do that. They're not going to have practices at the same time as bringing in guys like Mr. Wyatt from modern day, the four-star edge rusher uh, who will be on campus, I believe March 5th, uh, which is like the day after um, the, uh, the, the dead period is lifted. And so you can um, have kids on campus. So they will have uh, plenty of unofficial visitors uh, before spring practice, but I think a lot of the official visitors want to actually come during the spring practices. And it looks like the March 23rd weekend might be maybe like their holy hour last year, which kind of fell apart a bit. It wasn't quite as big as it originally was set out to be, but um, that could be a scrimmage weekend kind of um, 
you know, uh, on a Saturday where uh, the the team is um, kind of gotten things underway and maybe first day of full pads. I mean, spring practice is starting the 19th. So the 23rd is kind of like, you know, I think that's a Saturday and that's like maybe the first uh, real, real kind of practice. Like they start doing full speed stuff and um, you're going to have uh, a, several official visitors, one being a Cincinnati, Ohio edge rusher, Justin uh, Hill for star uh, coming out. Uh, from Ohio to uh, unofficially visit USC. That's going to be an unofficial visit. I think that's a good place to jump us off into our final round of topics, which I'm just going to kind of lump together, which is new official visits being set for the summer that have come out over the last couple of days. So we're just going to run through those really quickly, quickly, quickly. Upland, California cornerback, three-star Treston Castro, he locked in his official visit for May 30th. He's also going to take an official visit to Utah in June. Eastman Dodge County athlete Daryl Johnson is going to officially visit for June 7th. Also has Florida State coming up in June as well, the week after. Florida State is considered the leader. He has a couple crystal balls in for the Seminoles. Can as we mentioned, he's an athlete. Can play linebacker, Alabaster five-star edge rusher Jared Smith, who took an unofficial visit this past uh, February. Lovely heard from Eric Henderson that he was going to come back for an official visit. He has locked in an official visit for June twenty-first. So, is that shaping up to be the golden hour, Gerard? Could that be our golden hour date? Could that be our golden hour weekend? With the big ones with the yachts and the parties and the luau at Lincoln Riley's house. But Jared Smith has locked in his official visit. You have Malik Autry, who we had talked about and you have mentioned at the top of the show. Auburn commit, big boy, six foot five, 320 pounds. He committed last February to Auburn. So this will be an interesting one out of Opikilla, Alabama, Opikilla, Alabama. And then Pittsburgh four-star safety Jaden Hudson says that USC is going to get one of his official visits. It's not been locked in. Oregon is the considered the leader for him. Uh, Jaden Hudson, I believe, has been on campus multiple times. So this is not any sort of traction visit for him. But USC battling Oregon there for a four-star safety prospect out of Pittsburgh, California. So those are the updated visit schedules for uh, several players Gerard all right Gerard we have come to the end of the show which means listener questions we actually only got one listener question and I put it at the top of the show the NIL question about the quackers so I'm just gonna dig back into a question that's kind of just been sitting here for a minute has kind of got lost in the shuffle so I'm only going to do one today but just reminder if you want to ask us a recruiting question you can email us at podcast at uscfootball.com just make sure you put the composite recruiting, Chris and Gerard, 10K Cilantro Boys, whatever, and it'll go to my inbox. This comes from Arjun. Dear Cilantro Boys, two quick questions. Number one, where does Rajon Davis fit in the new defense? Is he big enough to play Mike? And two, does USC still have a chance, let alone a good chance, with former commit Anquan Fegans, given that his brother hasn't transferred out? Or has that ship sailed with Dante Williams? Thanks. Arjun, I'll start with the second question. I think Gerard has mentioned this a couple times. I wouldn't say 
they have no chance, but I wouldn't say they have a good chance. With Anquan Figgins, it seems like he's very focused on a lot of different programs, a lot of big programs as an elite safety. And yes, his brother is still here. I don't see them having a realistic shot of being back in play. Assuming uh, Traquan did not, you know, become a starter and become like an All-American caliber player this coming season. Obviously, I think that would uh, change the tide a little bit. But I think those that uh, relationship has kind of parted when it comes to Anquan and USC. Yeah, I agree. I think that he committed when there was some hype about Traquan Fegan's transferring to USC and sort of off the heels, got caught up in that, um, went back to campus uh, later that summer and it said that he'd not really talked to his brother a whole lot about being at USC. And so we thought that was kind of interesting and he had not been on campus very much and didn't really talk about whether he was going to hook up with his brother when he actually went to campus to unofficially visit. Uh, He was kind of between events. He was back in Alabama doing an event with his high school team at the University of Alabama and then coming out. And I think he got a day in at the OT7 tournament with the Trillium boys. And so he hasn't mentioned USC post decommitting hardly at all. And like Chris said, if his brother ended up, you know, being really good and being a standout performer on a defense that actually turned it around, certainly I could see there's some momentum maybe during the season at some point. I mean, he comes out to see his brother play because his brother's now a starter. There's Mm -hmm. definitely a possibility for USC to get some traction before the season. It doesn't seem like USC's really in the running for him uh, whatsoever. Uh, The first question about Rajon Davis, yes. And I would say he can play either. I think he's a little more built to play Will. Uh, That athleticism, that ability to play in space that he has, despite playing at the line of scrimmage as a recruit coming out of modern day, he was a guy that, you know, had the speed and had the athleticism. A lot of people felt like, you know, he could play safety in high school if he really wanted to. So you put him at Will Linebacker, I think he fits there. But I think he could get away with playing Mike Linebacker as well. Mike Linebacker really is more about the awareness, the vision, to be able to diagnose, to make your calls, to make sure you're communicating. Uh, there's a lot on your plate in terms of just understanding the defense, understanding what the offense is lined up to do, what to look at, getting your defensive line in front of you in the right gaps if you have any kind of shifts or what have you. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's a bit more on the mental side of taking that on. But physically, I think he could really get away with playing either. He's about 6'1 and a half, 6'2-ish, um, you know, 225, 230 pounds at this point. He's not huge. But, you know, it's going to be interesting to see with this defense, you know, are they going more for speed? Are they going for the guys that are a bit more of the traditional classic Mike linebackers like a Noah McHale? Um, I would say that they have looked a little more in getting athletic players. And you mentioned, you know, Daryl Johnson being a a kid that they are recruiting at linebacker uh, from Georgia who says he's going to take an official visit to USC. He's a smaller sort of 6'1", 200, 210 pound linebacker. And so, you know, those guys that are inside, uh, you know, perhaps they become a little more athletic. 
I don't really see a huge difference at that position from the previous defense. Um, you know, it's not like coming from Todd Orlando's defense where they're running a tight front and they kind of needed their linebackers to be downhill and blitzing all the time. Like one of those guys was going to blitz. That's just part of the scheme philosophically with Alex Grinch and now uh, Danton Lynn. I mean, Danton Lynn is, is still aggressive, um, but, I mean, it's not to say that Alex Grinch's defenses weren't aggressive. I mean, they just were making bad calls, and really the inside linebackers took themselves out of more plays than they made plays. I mean, you saw Mason Cobb, who's returning last year as an all-conference player out of the Big 12 at Oklahoma State, and he just looked completely out of position so many times. Uh, Tackett Curtis, out of position so many times, taking bad angles, but he was a freshman. So you're kind of like, okay, well, what combination of linebackers worked the best for USC last season? I don't think there was one that you could really hang your hat on and say, this is the best combination week in and week out. Every combination, including Rajon Davis, there were just games where they didn't play well. Now, I did like what I saw from Rajon Davis in, in a few games. I felt like he needed to be the guy, but then – as I said, there were games where you go, oh, man, even he's having problems and taking himself out of plays. And they were aggressive. They blitzed really early in the season a lot. They brought their linebackers or middle linebackers specifically because, you know, as we get into this new defense with DeAnton Lynn, you're going to have outside linebackers that are, you know, basically the size of defensive ends and uh, middle linebackers, inside linebackers. And they're going to be a bit different. But in terms of profile, I don't know if there's a big difference physically between Danton Lynn's defenses and what you had with Alex Ranch. I mean, I, I think they want fast. They want speed. They're not really looking for Cameron Smith types. Um, but at the same time, you know, Cameron Smith was a hell of a player for USC and made a lot of plays and, and was a guy that made a lot more plays than he was uh, really touted to make uh, from an athletic standpoint, just you know, in terms of how fast he was. Why? Because he had great eyes, he had great instincts, he was smart, and he was able to diagnose, and he was a step ahead. He was two steps ahead. So while maybe he was a half step slow, he was still two steps ahead because mentally he was a really good linebacker. And so, I mean, you're always looking at that at that position, but I don't see USC necessarily getting like, oh, we got to get so much bigger. Like with the outside linebackers, they got to get all so much bigger. <laughs> they got to get – there's no Corey Foreman, we're going to get you down to 235 nonsense. Um, you know, uh, Anthony Lucas, can you please be 250 instead of 275? Like that does not seem to be the approach right now with this defensive staff. And I know that's a relief um, to a lot of folks uh, that, you know, saw the small ball coming from Oklahoma and just, I mean, you know, you could, you could say, oh, it's not going to work. It didn't work in Oklahoma, but there is an argument to be made. Well, you know, we can't get those big guys out of the, the, the Southeast. We, we, we're not going to be able to recruit head-to-head -head with teams like Texas and teams like LSU uh, for those type of players. So we got to go in a different direction. We got to be smaller. We got to be more mobile. We got to have like almost like a guerrilla warfare type of mentality on the defense as opposed to being a conventional, we're going to bring heavy armor and we're just going to go straight up with you. Um, so I, I understood philosophically like where that comes from for Alex Grinch, especially when you're coming from uh, originally Washington State. And you again, you – it's a it's a defense philosophically that is made from mitigated talent. It's a, a philosophical uh, defense that your thought is 
we need to work around what we don't have rather than what we do have. And that is honestly similar to what you had with the air raid offense. I mean, that's how the air raid offense became uh, popular with so many uh, colleges and high schools because you couldn't go out there and recruit Deuce Robinson. So we got to go get these smaller wide receivers that can just be good in space and we get the ball out of the hands of the quarterbacks quick because we can't be able to recruit these big-time left tackles. Like it's all about trying to mitigate the talent that you don't have rather than the guys you do have. And so at a school like USC, you want to make your defense more about what you have rather than what you don't have. And that's what DeAnton Lynn is. And he did uh, more with less at UCLA. He has a little more across the board at USC, but still some big gaps. You know, there's still some, some holes in the defense and um, we'll see how he's able to fill those as a, Post to what he did at UCLA. All right, Gerard, that is going to wrap up another episode of the Composite Two Star Recruits. Another successful episode. Another successful episode. We're calling it a success. The cold open was a beast in and of itself. We hope we gave you guys some insight, pieced together some things, uh, tore down the uh, legal speak a bit, and gave it to you in a very casual um, manner, which, you know, you can kind of absorb a little better. But uh, at the same time, there's a lot that's not known and there's a lot that's still a little confusing. Uh, But hopefully you got something from that. It's obviously a topic that's going to be very significant going forward and we're going to talk about it, whether you like it or not. And I understand there's some folks out there that are college football purists and they don't really want to hear about it. They don't want to talk about it. They want it to just go away, but it's not going away. Um, And they're going to have to be some decisions made here in the short term and the long term as to uh, how each university wants to approach college athletics and, and how they want to handle their players. Couldn't say it any better than that. So I'm Chris. That is Gerard, and we will catch you next time on Composite Two Star Recruits. That leopard sucks!